Welcome to the 2018 Christmas episode of the Film 89 podcast, or if for whatever reason you don't celebrate Christmas, it's just episode 22. As usual, my name is Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk. Hi, podcast, it's me, Neil Gaskin. I'm back again, uh, writer for Film 89. And like I said, if you don't celebrate Christmas, happy life day. Happy life day, indeed. <laughs> okay, so for this very special Christmas episode, which was um, voted by your good selves, and we've recently put out a Twitter poll asking for you guys and girls to pick a Christmas film that we're going to be covering this episode. And the winner, by a margin of nine votes, was the film which we're going to be talking about, which you already know because you've read the description. It is the 1988 John McTiernan directed Bruce Willis starring action classic. Die Hard. And joining us via Skype to discuss Die Hard today all the way from Long Beach, California. He's the co-founder and editor of jabhookboxing.com. He's an extremely knowledgeable cinephile and film fan whose podcasting credentials need no validation. And moreover, he's now a writer for Film 89. It gives us great pleasure to finally welcome to the podcast our very good friend, Mr. Jacob Rivera. Jacob, welcome to Film 89. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Obviously, Jacob, we were going to get together back in the summer um, to do Die Hard because we, you know, initially I think we were going to tie it in with the um, the 40th anniversary of the actual US release of the film. But you know, I think we 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 thought, you know, Die Hard, and you know, this is going to cause some, con- you know, or, or hark back to a lot of recent Twitter controversy about Die Hard being a Christmas film. Let's make no bones about it. The film's set at Christmas. It's a Christmas film. It's set at Christmas Eve, and it's 30 years anniversary, not 40, as you just mentioned. But anyway... Oh, did I say 30? You said 40. I said 40, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Die Hard. It's it's 30 years old. I'm glad I'm back, just to correct him on these things. 30 and a bit, you know. Yeah, it came out, I think, in um, July of 1988. Or there, yeah. Or thereabouts. Christmas film released in the summer. Yeah, Christmas film released in the summer. But, you know, make no bones about it, Die Hard is a Christmas film. And you, the good public, have voted for Die Hard to be our Christmas film. So we thought, I tell you what, we put it off on the summer, so let's actually do it. Die Hard came in number one with 31 votes. You had Lethal Weapon with 22 votes. That would have been a great one. Yeah. I, I, would have, I would have happily talked about Lethal Weapon. In third place was Gremlins. Again, another great Christmas film. This one really surprised me, but until I actually saw the film, and I thought, you know, actually that makes sense. In fourth place was the new Netflix Kurt Russell film, The Christmas Chronicles. Guys, have you managed to see that yet? Yeah, I actually yeah, mm-hmm. I watched it last weekend with the, uh, with the kids and uh, loved, it. Jake, loved it. Jacob, have you seen it yet? No, I have not seen that. It, well, it, it's the perfect family Christmas film, and there's a lot of sort of stuff in there for adults as well. Really highly recommended. Santa Pliskin. Yep, Santa Pliskin. And then you had <laughs> Home Alone and the Bill Murray film Scrooge with 10 votes. You had It's a Wonderful Life with 8 votes, and you had uh, the Will Ferrell comedy Elf with 6 votes, and then a few other stragglers, um, which I won't bother wasting time going into. No mention, but, no mention of Cobra or... Is Cobra a Christmas film? <laughs> Cobra set at Christmas. No mention of First wow. Blood. No First Blood. No, no. First Blood wasn't. No. no I don't think any votes for First Blood. So Jacob, before we um, sort of jump headlong and sort of blow the roof on Die Hard, see what see what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> for the for the film eighty nine listeners who don't know who you are, just sort of um, take us through who you are. You know how you got into podcasting and and you know give us a bit of a history of your love of film. I, you know, I've lived in Southern California my whole life, but I've always been a big fan of film. You know, my dad, my parents are divorced and I'm roughly about, I think you're guys' age. I'm going to be 41 here in um, in January. But, uh, you know, I, I grew up during the, the 80s and 
you know, when my parents got divorced when I was five, my dad would pick me up every other weekend and we would go see movies, you know, me and my brother and my dad and probably some that were not appropriate for my age. But, uh, you know, I, I turned out all right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Um, and then, you know, as as time progressed, I've never really had like, you know, I've had some friends that were like into movies, but not like as hardcore as I, I feel like I am. And like many of the people that uh, follow the podcast or uh, the wrong real community, which is where I kind of explored into the podcasting. But um, uh, I just one day, you know, I started using Twitter, talking about movies and boxing. And then eventually I got hooked up with James uh, uh, Hancock over at wrong real. And he had me on for a boxing episode. And so that was my debut podcast. And then, you know, I also guest on um, some boxing podcasts, you know, when when I can, you know, I've been on Flixwise, sorry, Flixwise uh, Canada with Martin Kessler and a few more other wrong real episodes. But uh, again, I'm honored to be on on this episode of, of Film 89. I, I love the podcast. You know, it's it's one of my favorites. And I think the reason I love it so much and I love wrong real. I mean, wrong real is is, is an excellent podcast, but uh, you guys seem like I said more near my age and and just the way you guys talk about films and and joke around your sense of humor and everything is just like right up my alley and i don't really have that outlet outside of the twitter uh podcast universe um you know i don't i have a few close friends but like i said they're not into either boxing or movies as much as i am so it's hard to connect with them on on that level well, you've got a friend in me with with both those subjects, there, Jacob. I got to be honest, mate, and uh, I know what you mean. It is hard sometimes because I find you sort of non-film loving friends. Sometimes when you're talking to them about a film, you can also, almost see them glazing over. It's like it's just a movie. Why are you talking about it so passionately? You know, why are you so Why are you so excited to see this film? And, you, and like you say, it is it is hard sometimes, isn't it? But when you do find a like minded group of people, it's great to have a, the, the conversations we've been having. I mean, since I started doing this, I thoroughly enjoyed meeting up with all of you guys, whether through Twitter or through the podcast. It's been great. Yeah, I, me and my brother used to, you know, you know, we do quotes from movies all the time. That's how we would talk to each other. And it would just bug the shit out of my parents or anybody that was around us because they didn't they weren't in on the joke. And so, you know, that I, I feel like with this community that's been built, which I'm super happy, you know, it's, it's literally changed my life. Uh, I'm, I'm so thankful for it. And, uh, you know, it's that kind of, you know, references that, you know, people get are, you know, the exposure to these other movies that, I, that I've never heard of. You know the first bit about you know you, you're coming from like a family of divorced parents. Both my my parents yeah. divorced. Neil's parents yeah. divorced. You know I'm a similar age to you. Neil obviously is much older than the both of I'm us. I'm actually 40, <laughs> I'm actually forty three for the record. <laughs> <laughs> I just I turned forty three last week. I'm a year older than Scott. Oh yeah, right. Right. <laughs> okay, yeah. But yeah, you know you know Neil and I have known each other now for well I don't know thirteen thirteen years. years yeah. And you know we we were together for for a long time and sort of a, a lot of our friendship is based on our sort of mutual love of film and then you know when we sort of discovered wrong real and like the you know the sort of amazing community that, that kind of sprouted up around it and then you know as a result of getting on the wrong real and getting the confidence to sort of start our own podcast you know we made friends with people like yourself with james with bill scurry with becky diana dave eves martin kessler you know all of these people you know some of whom have already been on the podcast and others who you know hopefully will come on at some point but yeah you know we're all just extremely grateful to be part of this big sort of film loving community and you know we're all united by our love of film and a sort of mutual respect for each other and, and as we've said before just the fact that we don't always agree but, you know, we always sort of get on and we always sort of respect each other's opinions, which I know we might sound a little bit sort of schmaltzy and, and whatever, but, 
you don't always find that and certainly like Twitter you know and Facebook can be a very sort of toxic place when it comes to people's differing opinions on films but you know I think we've we found ourselves part of a group which you know is very respectful of, of, of each other no matter you know whether our opinions you know are going in the same direction or, or if they're different no I, I I you you hit on a big point there I think without that it's basically that's the glue of the uh, the relationship or the group because without that like you said it's a very toxic environment people like to get on their high horse and and just knock people down you know for their taste and 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 again these are all opinions it's all subjective to what your tastes are so if you like a movie then you know power to you you know i don't why why do i need to you know knock somebody down for that but you know a lot of these people these trolls you know they they just they feed off that you know especially like a youtube uh, video you know you'll you'll hear some really terrible things on there but uh yeah so i, I think that that's an important point of, about the respect between all of us in the community yeah you know i think as um as people have mentioned before that you know i, I don't think that sort of toxicity would be sort of tolerated amongst you know the sort of group of friends we formed we, we all we want to do is to share with our listeners the sort of mutual sort of love of, of film and television that we've all kind of got and you know, I think the whole point of these podcasts is when you listen to us talking about a film like we're going to talk about Die Hard tonight. If once you've listened to us, you want to go ahead and you know you want to go away from it and put that film on, I think we've done our job. But moving on to the you know the, the film we're talking about tonight, Die Hard. Jacob, um, can you remember the first time you saw Die Hard? I can. Um, unfortunately, I didn't see it in the theater for some reason because uh, I used to see pretty much all the movies in the theater, but um, I remember. This is back in the day of video cassettes. So for our younger listeners out there, they probably don't know what a video cassette is. <laughs> but um, we used to have to go to um, – I used to have a, a babysitter that um, – husband who used to wait at a, a video store called Blockbuster, uh, which there I think there's like maybe one left. But um, I'm not sure if you guys had Blockbuster no, over we, there. We, in we, the, had Blockbuster. Yeah. we had Blockbuster over here as well, yeah. Yeah, we had. Yeah, yeah so, I, I think I've seen recently on um, on Facebook or Twitter that that one remaining blockbuster is still open. Um, I think it's even in the trailer to uh, Captain Marvel. I believe I, I think they they have a shot at the blockbuster. Yeah, they, they do. Too. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, because obviously that's is set in 1995. Correct. Correct. So um, yeah, so he used to wait. This what this guy would do. He'd wait at the blockbuster and he would talk to the the counter the person at the counter and he would say well you know whatever new movie when it when are you supposed to how many of these are supposed to come back tonight and they'd say oh there's three that are due tonight and he would wait literally wait there for hours until he got it and then he would take it home he would record it he like copy it and then like that would be put into his like little movie um collection that i had access to so one night he uh, he he did get a copy of that Die Hard and he put it on with a super surround sound and I was just blown away. I think it's at this point, Jacob. I'll just have to sort of insert a little public service announcement. The film eighty nine in no way endorses the pirated uh, copies of VHS, <laughs> which I'll be honest with you, yeah, it was it was a bit of a common thing. You take I think you would take two VHS recorders and there was a way of linking them together and you could actually record. From the one I, I onto up, the other. I grew up in Ely, I can tell you what to do. Yeah, <laughs> word word if you want, mate. Yeah. It, <laughs> you know, and, and obviously these days, you know, there, there, there's ways around copy protection on DVDs and Blu-rays, but, you know, given the fact you can pretty much find everything free online these days, if, you know, if you should choose to, yeah. should you choose to do it, you know, it, it sort of it sort of negated the need to sort of copy physical media. Yeah, but, you know, I was aware of a lot of people who used to copy, um, you know, or, or pirate VHS uh, 
recordings. Well, they used to have those great sort of like public service announcements at the beginning. I don't know if, I don't know if you guys had it in America because I know they were British made over here. Mm. But they used to tell you if you watched pirate DVDs, you were basically funding terrorism and you know yeah. your drug dealers. Yeah, and, yeah was, ours, ours was an FBI warning. It oh said, yeah, oh, it, yeah. yeah. It'd be a big red FBI warning that said. If you are copying this or you're distributing it, it could be punishable by $200 or $2,500 fine or something like that and time in jail. Do you know, Jacob, right? It, it, may, it may sound crazy to our US listeners, right? I think the, the vast majority of um, UK VHS recordings still carry that same FBI warning. Yeah. Because it was <laughs> it was, it was a $250,000 fine. Yeah. As if, like, realistically, as if the United States government are going to fine an individual $250,000 for pirating a VHS. But part of the warning was you couldn't show this pirated video in a prison or an oil rig. <laughs> or an oil rig. Yeah. Well, yeah. Think, well, if you watched it in a prison, you'd obviously didn't care because you were only doing time. <laughs> and if you're on an oil rig, what did they have like sort of like Greenpeace warrior ships coming out to yeah. get you or something? It was like, how are they going to find out? Yeah. And the other thing as well, when you grew up in Britain, you'd see the FBI and you'd be like, nah, they won't bother with me. I'll no, right. no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I even remember that at the time that the very same warning would come up on certain video games in the arcade and it was William S. Sessions was the FBI. Jesus Christ. He was, he was, the, yeah, he was the, the head of the FBI in the the, the late eighties to, to the early nineties. I, I actually saw that boy so many times. I actually remembered who the, the the director general of the FBI was at the was time. Was he the one who couldn't catch Lecter on his own? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, Jacob, um, I've cut you off there. Have, um, have you got anything else to say about how you first saw Die Hard? Again, for the younger, I didn't see it in the theater, and back then, even just one little antidote, um, we used to have to wait. Like you'd have to wait, like, I don't know, sometimes up to a year, but like probably like six to eight months for something to come out on a, a video cassette. Yeah. So it was like a big deal, like if you can get access to it. Well, it was exactly the same here. And bearing in mind that probably longer. Yeah. Probably, wasn't it? yeah. These days, like certainly with the Marvel films, the UK release will go will come ahead of the of the US release, just like um, uh, Infinity War earlier on in the year, which then came out a few days before the US release. But back in the 80s and and you know early 90s, You'd have a film that would say you know come out in July in America. It wouldn't necessarily come out you know for another four or five months in the UK on some occasions. Yeah. So you know adding on top of that then the actual delay of it coming to home video because you know like you Jacob I, was, I think I was too young to see Die Hard in the cinema. Um, you know when he had a, a you know his theatrical release in the UK he was actually given an 18 certificate, which has now since been dropped by the BBFC to a 15 certificate, which is sort of it was in between the PG 13 and the R rating, but you know. A lot of PG-13 films would end up getting a 15 certificate if they were particularly hard. And a lot of the sort of lower-end R-rated films would get a, a 15 certificate yeah. also. Whereas the 18 certificate was pretty much um, sort of in between your R-rating and your NC-17. So you, you could have a lot of really sort of graphically violent films that would get an 18 certificate. But theatrically, if you looked under 18, then you weren't going to get in. So... Like you, Jacob, my first experience of Die Hard was probably early 1989 on VHS. Yeah, same with me. Um, and you, you, know, you were waiting in Blockbuster for a couple of hours with your friend. I actually waited 14 days to see Die Hard. <laughs> and ironically, on my birthday, and I thought it was my 15th birthday, but I'm trying to work it out now. I think it was probably my 14th birthday. But it was pre-Blockbuster. We had a sort of local sort of video shop. Lovely girl called Tanya used to work behind the counter. I still remember Tanya. Now, you'd basically have to pre-order films for like two or three weeks. When sort of Blockbuster sort of opened up over here, my mind was blown because you could go in and get like 10, 10 of the same title. Most of the video shops in the UK pre-Blockbuster, you were lucky if you had 
two copies of a film. So when a film would come out, sometimes you'd be on a, you'd have to go on a waiting list, and it'd take two or three months sometimes before um, you know a very popular film before you get to actually see it. Only two copies. Yeah, that sort of av- the average sort of video shop pre-blockbuster in the UK was probably about the size of most people's sort of living room or dining room. It was yeah. a very sort of small sort of like backstreet shop. And mm-hmm. like I say, you were lucky if you had two copies of a, of a title in a video shop. You know, I think Blockbuster didn't come over the UK probably until the, the, the mid-1990s, I would have thought. Blockbuster would have been, yeah, uh, probably probably late 1990s, I would have yeah. said. Because I was sort of 17, 18 when the Blockbuster opened up, probably. Yeah. It, it, did, you, did you guys have the warehouse or um, Hollywood video? No. No, we, no that, you know, like, Blockbuster was pretty much the only yeah. one that was a sort of major concession over here, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and like I say, you know, that was well, well into the sort of DVD, uh, sorry, the, the, the VHS era. Before Blockbuster came to the UK... It was pretty much small independent um, video shops, and even then they would be part of a of a of a, of a, a you know a supermarket or yeah. or even sometimes, and this sounds quite bizarre, like a garage where you could go where you would go to have your car repaired, well, where you'd buy auto parts. They would actually <laughs> have a little concession on the side where they rented out video cassettes, which I know sounds completely bizarre because it's totally unrelated to cars and car parts. <laughs> well, we, used to, we used to have a video guy used to come on the street with a car. Yeah, we would have yeah. the boot would be full of videos. And most of them would probably, wow. cause, would probably you know, have, yeah. I, I don't know if this is a popular thing in the States, but like you've got, you know, you know, ice cream vans that, that come around in the summer. You'd also have in the UK, you'd have like sort of portable libraries, which were sort of run by local councils and they'd come around and you could, you know, they'd stop in your street, you could go on, you could take some books and then you'd return them the following week. And then, you know, as as people realised that there was a market there to, to sort of rent, you know, video cassettes out, they had mobile VHS libraries that would yeah. come round to your street, you could go on the back of this big van that, that you know, that had like sort of shelves upon shelves of, of uh, video cassettes and you know, you'd pay the guy your two or three pounds, and then you'd you'd rent the cassette for you know four or five nights. And then wait, how, so would you give your name? Like, how would he know to? You yeah, you I think the, the the very first time you rented something, you'd have to show some form of identification, yeah. so they knew that who you were, and you know you, you weren't going to run off with this video cassette. Um, you know, but I think a lot of that was was done sort of on a on a on a sort of goodwill basis, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm obviously, did like, you guys did you guys have Betamax or was it just VHS? No, we did we did a well we, we did the Betamax as well, but primarily yeah. it was it was almost a running joke over here. One, it was anyone who had a Betamax was go the wrong, the yeah. wrong machine because you could. I can remember the the first video shop I ever went into. I sort of harangued my dad into buying a, a, a VHS recorder. Mm-hmm. He, for some reason, I think he was going to buy a Betamax or Betamax version. Yeah. And then when we went to the the first video shop we ever went to, it was like nine tenths of it was VHS, and there was like a few sort of <laughs> Betamax in the corner. And he was like, "Okay, you made the right decision." Yeah. You know, I've got vague recollections of going into, you know, my local video shop. And, you know, even growing up, I can think of three, maybe four, like, local video shops that sort of sprang up over the years of my childhood where where I would go. Even to this day, I can remember, like, the first one was, it was a, like I say, it was a garage and it was run by a guy called Mike. Um, and, his, and his garage was called Mike's Car Spares. And he actually had, a, you know, a little sort of VHS concession on the side. Um, there was another one which was like a local like sort of little convenience store and then there was another one which was like a full-on independent video rental shop in in, in a sort of back room off off that he had like a little place where he had like a, a few arcade cabinets so you'd go in 
you know, you, you'd, you'd sort of put your name in the book to sort of reserve your copy of the latest film that was coming in maybe the following week. You know, take your pocket money, go out the back and play, you know, Captain Commando or Bubble Bobble or, or you, know, the, you know, the sort of latest arcade <laughs> games they had in. So, yeah, you know, this whole arcade and video rental culture, which our you know, generation is so fond of, it's just completely alien to, you know, sort of young people today. There's, there's sort of nothing really for them to compare it with because... Obviously, video rentals completely died to death. And I think outside of Japan, you're not going to see an arcade game anywhere apart from, you know, a, a collector's. I mean, at the back the back room of the video shop I used to go into, I wasn't allowed to go into. Like, oh, yeah. That's another that. thing. With certain video rental shops had, they had an adult section out the back. And in, in, the, in the sort of mid to late 90s, they, they were sort of licensing, you know, the UK licensing body sort of clamped down on this and, and made it a lot more strict to have these, you know, you had to be i think a licensed sex shop to have you know an adult section in the end but for the longest time yeah you could you, know, you could go through those little curtains at the back and then oh, um, no, <laughs> at the video shop i used to go to they had a beaded it had saloon doors the beads yeah the beads doors, yeah saloon doors and a beaded curtain <laughs> and you yeah. Could, yeah and if you went anywhere near the guy with a company to show you get away from there <laughs> but yeah all the dads are going there <laughs> yeah, I, I, I used to think that you know you know because i was so obsessed with movies i was like oh man i should get a job at a video a store you know this is like a dream job right you know i could just watch movies all day long rent for free but uh yeah but jacob I, 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 you know that's exactly what happened to quentin tarantino in that um you know that video rental store that he worked in and, and you know look where he ended up in Hollywood, it's a, it's pretty hard to be a success story. I mean, I, I'm sure there's there's many like Quentin Tarantino people that worked in video stores that never made it, but uh, he got the right opportunities and got the script in the into the right hands. Yeah. Well, you know, to paraphrase uh, Hans Gruber, we could talk video rentals and uh, CD, you know, <laughs> pornography <laughs> stashes all day. But let's get back to the matter of, at hand: Die Hard. Neil, just give us a little run through of the sort of production history of Die Hard, its origins, and you know how it came to be you know, the final film that it is. Well, it's, I was to say it's a, it's a well sort of tread story now that it's um, a film that was in development for uh, pretty much over a decade, based on the uh, the, the novel by uh, Roderick Thorpe, which was called Nothing Lasts Forever. Yeah. Which obviously is not as great a name as Die Hard. No, not at all. But it was no. actually a sequel to his uh, 1966 novel, The Detective. That he'd already done and had been made into a major motion picture starring Frank Sinatra or Blue Eyes himself. Yeah. Um, I don't think Thorpe was that much of an acclaimed writer as such. He'd scored big with a detective. I don't think he'd really done anything since then, you know, success wise anyway. Mm. But um, allegedly, it came to him after watching Tower in Inferno. He had a dream there that he was being chased by gunmen through a tall skyscraper. And Nothing Last Forever was born, and uh, our lead hero came into fruition, but not by the name of John McClane. He actually came in as Joseph Joseph Leland, who was an agent, uh, the same character that uh, Sinatra had played, and now would be a retired New York police detective on his way to Los Angeles to visit his daughter for a Christmas party hosted by a boss. Rather than it being Nakatomi buildings, uh, uh, Nakatomi Towers, it was actually the Klaxon Oil buildings. Well, guys, have either of you seen the 68 film, The Detective Style and Frank Sinatra, then, the, the sort of um, original template for Die Hard? I have not. No, no, I've got to admit, I did this week, I thought, perhaps I'd look it up, and I just haven't had the time to do it, but uh, I have sort of mixed reviews about it as a film anyway, really, mm. to be honest. It's supposed to be quite a sort of, um, for this time, quite a sort of kinky film, with a lot of bondage yeah. and fetish. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think for 68, from what I gather, and again, this is talking from the standpoint of someone who hasn't actually seen the film, but has done like sort of just a little bit of research around it, it was quite controversial for the time. You had, you know, 1968 was that, it, it was the same year, the bullet came out, yeah, wasn't it? Was, it? Yeah. And, you know, we were sort of going 
going into that sort of era of the late 60s, early 70s, where cinema was going to become a lot more sort of, you know, it was going to sort of step outside the boundaries of the of the Hayes Code, and it was going to sort of tackle a lot more controversial things like, you know, things like abortion, organised crime, um, you know, homosexuality, sort of a lot of subjects which prior to that had been seen as extremely taboo. From what I gather, the detective was, you know, a sort of... It's right on that sort of cut... Yeah, it's on the cusp. Of, yeah, it's, on, it's on the cusp of sort of just before we we sort of got into like you know Midnight Cowboy. I think was one of the films that sort of pushed us full on into that sort of territory. And anyway, even now, look looking back at you know a, a film like Midnight Cowboy that was given an X rating of the t- you know when it came out in 1969. Looking back now, it's, it's tame compared to modern standards. Well, the sort of basis behind this really with um, with Nothing Lasts Forever basically is, is tied up into that sort of thing of trying to expand on it really when um so we don't have hans gruber yeah we have uh, anton little tony the red gruber yeah who's of german heritage he's actually running sort of like uh, like a sort of hippie sort of terrorist group as you like yeah. their aim is to take over the building to take six million dollars from the vault and distribute it like a robin hood basically yeah uh, launch this money for the top of the building and let the people have it unfortunately what he's not banked on is uh a sort of sixty-something retired cop, Joe Leland. Mm-hmm. One thing that pops into my head straight away is if they wanted to reboot this movie, Bruce Willis now would actually be the age of Joe Leland. He would, yeah, <laughs> so I they could do he would. this. Yeah. Much the same sort of basis. Leland's going to the Christmas party, but rather than to make up with his ex-wife, he's going to make up with his uh, estranged daughter, Stephanie Gennaro. When she when he gets there, then obviously the terrorists take over the building in much the same fashion and in uh, very sort of similar circumstances. He has to take them up one by one. Mm. Interestingly. Half the terrorists in the sixties, uh, the 70s book are female. Really? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And a sort of implication with this is basically does Leland make more trouble? Because the, their sort of element is their sort of ethos is that they're going to rob from the rich, give to the poor. They don't yeah. want to hurt anyone, and that's the sort of conundrum that when you're reading the book, and I say the book is quite heavy reading to be honest. It's quite hard. When I say heavy reading, not hard to understand, but it's very sort of hard to get into because it's actually written like an action film. Yeah. It's very sort of generic. I did go through it a couple of years ago I can't talk about it that much but I wasn't a million percent I absolutely loved Die Hard but I bought the book obviously for that reason I wasn't that impressed with the book if I'm honest but there are some sort of interesting similarities we'll probably come to as we go through the film so obviously, you know, the, what eventually would become Die Hard was, was sort of mooted about Hollywood. Numerous actors were fitted for the role of John McClane. You know, depending on which sources you believe, um, I'm not even going to go into it now, but ultimately... Uh, you know, as we know now, it fell to Bruce Willis, who at the time, I think the only thing he was known for was Moonlighting, the TV show with Sybil Shepherd. I think the only movie he'd done in a sort of starring role was Blind Date. Was Blind Date. Yeah, Blind, Blind think, Date. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure Blind Date. Was that Blake Edwards? Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 yeah. yeah I think it was Blake Edwards was the director. Um, he was starring alongside Kim Basinger. It's, you know, do you know right? Growing up, Blind Date is a film I've probably seen about two dozen times. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned before, my mum was quite a big influence on me with regards to films, and one of her favourite films um, in the sort of late eighties, early nineties was Blind Date. Yeah, and I actually there was I haven't seen that film now for probably nigh on twenty five plus years, probably thirty years. But if you were to put that film on now, there's probably entire portions of that film I could probably reel off verbatim to. Um, you know, it was it was it, it was a you know a decent enough comedy for the time. But again, it was very much fitted with the character That's of, right. of David yeah. that he played in Moonlight. It was, it was. It was basically, you know, you, if you imagine, you know, the guy from Moonlight went on a blind date. Yeah. This would have fitted in perfectly with Bruce Willis's character again, wouldn't it? And I think even by the time I saw Die Hard, I'd probably only seen about 
four, maybe five episodes of um, of Moonlighting. I used to love Moonlighting. See, but, I've got a few yeah. as well. Things. If I went back to it now, I'd think it was complete garbage. But it, yeah, I but, can remember as a kid, absolutely <laughs> loving it. it. It was. Yeah, Jacob, were you a, were you a fan of Moonlighting? No, you know, I, I I knew what Moonlighting was. You know, I wasn't really into uh, TV that much. Um, like I like I said, I, I was really into movies. Like I was just watching a lot of movies. But uh, so I've never seen an episode of Moonlighting. Um, I knew it was uh, really popular. Um, you know, the previous film that you mentioned, Blind Date, that over here in the states on HBO, it was on like like every other it seemed like every other movie you know they used to play certain movies to death and that was one of them so i had seen that like yourself you know dozens of times with uh you know very prime uh kim basinger you know the very early in her career yeah you know when uh die hard uh came out and bruce willis was the lead you know he had he wasn't really known for you know again action star no it does seem like a really strange choice i mean now when we look back now you sort of Consider him one of those sort of big hitters. You put him up there with Andy and Sly, don't you, as being the sort of action movie icons of our of our youth. But like you say, when you look when you look at some of the names that were mooted early seventies, you're going from everyone from Redford to Clint Eastwood. Sinatra ironically had to be offered the role contractually. Yeah, you know. But if we look sort of early eighties, I mean, it passed through um, Mel Gibson, yeah. Sly. Arnie, they were talking yeah. about that. Depending on who you believe, it was going to be Commando Two, or it was going to be a separate entity with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, like you say, it does seem quite a strange choice to get this sort of wise cracking guy from Moonlight in to become this ultimate action icon. But of course, definition of the action icon is completely flipped on its lid with it. So I suppose they had to look outside the box, really, didn't they? Well, I think it was a it was a great choice though, because unlike uh, Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger, I mean, those guys, you know, they're very muscular and like you know, what you would call typical 80s action, um, you know, like hero. This is like, you know, this is supposed to be like kind of an everyman, an everyday cop who gets caught into a situation. So it kind of works perfectly. And I feel like the viewer can relate to the hero uh, more because it's it's like, hey, that could be me because he's not bulging with muscles. He's using his brains to kind of like get himself out of situation. So it, it in, in a way, it kind of heightens the movie for me that it's a more relatable character. Oh, definitely. And I say, if you yeah. look at if you look at all those big names there, I mean, pretty much the only one I could sort of say could have carried it off might have been possibly Mel Gibson. But again, he's a little bit too good looking as well. Bruce Willis is, like you say, the definition of the everyman. Yeah, he is a New York beat cop, and he's you know a New York detective cop who's worked his way up from the beat cop, I should say. But he, like you say, he's not an all sort of muscle bound action hero, is he? As such. I mean, the straight away from the beginning of the film, opening shot of the film, we see that McLean's actually scared of flying. Mm. Right. Yeah, you know that, that that's something we're going to come to is is the fact that it sort of takes what could have been you know a sort of typical eighties action star role you know with your your superhuman sliced alone Arnold Schwarzenegger type character and it brings it down to that sort of everyman hero level where along the writing process that actually happened. I'm unsure, and I don't think we're ever going to know. You know, but the film was written. It was based, obviously, on a novel by Roderick Thorpe. But it was written by Jeb Stewart, who I think prior to Die Hard, he'd not done anything of any you know sort of note. You know, after that, he did the the 1989 Stallone film Lock Up. He did another 48 Hours in 1990. He did The Fugitive in 1993, and a few films, you know, aside from that. The other writer was Stephen E. D'Souza, and I think here is where the sort of you know the the sort of commando um, sort of link comes in. Stephen D'Souza, he was a writer on the on V, which obviously we covered with uh, Bill Scurry a few episodes back. 
He then did the screenplay for 1985 Arnold Schwarzenegger action classic Commando. Um, he then did Jumping Jack Flash with Whoopi Goldberg in 86. He did The Running Man in 87. And then his next major sort of writing role in 1988 was Die Hard. Now, who was responsible for this sort of you know idea of bringing him down to this everyman level? Like I say, I don't think we're going to know. But I think that is one of the things that sort of Die Hard nails. By this point in 1988, I think we'd seen three Rambo films. Because I think, yeah. didn't Rambo 3 come out in... Yeah, 88 I think yeah, Ram been, Rambo yeah. 2 was 85 wasn't it I'm pretty sure Rambo 3 was 88 but like, yeah. 88 yeah. yeah 88 so you know by this point now we'd seen Rambo take on you know the entire Afghan army or, or was he no in fact <laughs> he was with the Afghans wasn't he he was fighting yeah. the Russians he was fighting with the brave men of the Taliban yeah. in Rambo yeah. 3 <laughs> oh yeah I know how anachronistic that now sounds but yeah that is actually you know the plot of Rambo 3 you know, we'd seen Arnold Schwarzenegger take on an entire army in commando. You know, he'd established his sort of superhero credentials. And I think the best thing Diard does, it grounds it as one man who's just a New York detective. He's not a superhuman, you know. And as we see in the film, he is entirely vulnerable. His vulnerability is set up early on. And as we're going to come to later on, one of the best things I think Diehard does is it uses the setup and the payoff as good as any other film I can think of, you know, like you say, Neil, that opening scene on the f on uh, so that opening scene in the film where um, John McClane lands in Los Angeles, he's he's showing he's got a fear of flying. The guy he sat next to then gives the whole uh, I've got this little tip to get over you know flying your fear of flying or jet lag by you know taking taking your shoes and socks off, walk around on the carpet, making fists with your toes. Now I've always thought with that is he tending to sort of de-stress himself or is that a jet lag thing? You see. Yeah, well, here you go, Jacob. Flying from the east to the west coast of America, is that long a long enough flight to cause jet lag? Yeah, I mean, I don't personally get jet lag from that t flight, but I've I've had many people that I know that fly east to west or west to east, um, coast to coast, and, and they do get jet lag. And, of course, you've got to cross different time zones as well, because, we, you know, we're sort of used to every, everywhere we take off from, basically. We yeah, we, we end up in a different time zone. It's like, yeah. I, you know, I've flown to New York and back, and by the time I got back, I had, like, crippling jet lag. I think we landed at half five in the evening. By the time I got home, you know, I was just, I collapsed on the sofa with my with my son, who I think was, like, 18 months old at the time, and me and him and my wife both, like, slept for about two or three hours as soon as we, you know, as soon as we got in through the door. So, you know, there's a few times I've experienced jet lag, but that's after like an you know an eight and a half hour plus flight. But either way, you know, it's a good it's a good sort of driver factor to get your shoes and socks. It is, yeah. Die Hard on the surface, it's an action film, but you know when you start to strip away the layers and look at the way it's constructed, the way it's written, the way the characters are set up, you know the way the plot is set up. You know, I don't know what you guys think, but I I think hands down, Die Hard is one of the, if not the, best written action films I think I've ever seen. Uh, it's definitely up there for me. Um, you know, another John McTurnan film that I think that could give it a run for its money is something like Predator, you know. But uh, Die Hard has, like you said, has so many layers, you know. It's, it's, it's in a way, it's like a buddy movie, you know. It, it's, um, you know, an action movie. It has a lot of funny moments and a lot of comedy to it. Um, you know, it has the uh, story with, uh, you know, which was a common story, like as we talked about earlier, of, you know, the struggles of a marriage and but still, you know, the love there. And so in, in a way, it's kind of a love story. You know, this this guy's, you know, trying to get back to his wife and, and his family, um, even though they're going through tough times. So it has so many elements that I think that are appealing that could agree. You know, I wouldn't argue with you if you said it, it's it's the you know best action movie of all time. 
Jacob, let's let's have a look at what you've mentioned there, right? Because yeah, you 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 brought a Predator. That's a film that Neil, myself, and Martin Kessler sort of you know put under the microscope and, and dissected um, a few episodes back in in episode sixteen. You know, it comes as no secret to anyone that's familiar with with this podcast now that Predator is one of our favorite films. On the few occasions where I've sort of tried to compile my my list of my ten favorite films, Predator has always been you know a contender or actually you know has appeared on our list. Having recently rewatched Die Hard, you know, almost a week ago in the cinema. Um, for the first time, for, for the, yeah, for the yeah. first time in the cinema, Neil and I were lucky enough to catch a, a you know a showing of Die Hard you know, on his fortieth anniversary. Thirtieth anniversary. Thirtieth <laughs> anniversary. Why do I keep saying forty? <laughs> <laughs> for his thirtieth anniversary in the cinema, and I have to say, Die Hard is a film I probably haven't seen for about maybe eight to ten years. Prior to that, I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen Die Hard. So you know, watching the film again, it holds no surprises for me. But seeing that film on the big screen you know i think because i haven't seen it for nearly a decade now that actually has worked to the film's advantage because i was almost watching it thinking is this film going to have aged anymore is it going to have sort you know is there going to be certain aspects of the film which are going to be dated you know is there anything about this film which is in any way sort of going to take away from you know that lofty position that i've always held in it because put a gun to my head and say what's the greatest action film of all time without question I will say Die Hard, but having watched it a week ago now and and mulled over the film yet again for for the last week, I I think I can more than justify that claim. Just looking at how the film sets itself up, Die Hard is a two hour, I think two hour and 12 minute film. So much of that film is set up, yet it just gives you just enough to go on. We know just enough about John McClane, about his situation with his wife. I think it probably gives far more detail into the sort of intermarital sort of politics that have been going on between um you know john mclean and holly mclean or holly Gennaro over the last six months than any other film but the reason it does that is because it wants to humanize its hero it also wants to up the stakes because later on obviously when hans gruber realizes who holly is and again the little setup by and, and neil's got a fantastic sort of thing about john mclean He's not like sort of balls to the wall cocky. And when he goes to that party in Nakatomi Plaza, he's very sort of reserved. He almost seems like socially awkward. And there you go, Neil, I'll hand over to you. Well, I was going to say, with both, with both these situations, like I said, I'll just flip it on this before I come to that. We're Sky City, I haven't seen a film for a decade. I make, This is my routine every Christmas Eve, 9 pm, Die Hard goes on. So I hadn't seen nice. this film. I hadn't seen this film for 50 weeks. But, yeah. like, but for the last six, seven years, I can guarantee I've seen it every Christmas Eve. Every time I watch this film, I find something new in it. Again, this time round was no no difference. But yeah, I would say if you notice with McLean, he's not like you say the average sort of cop. If you look at sort of you know see your Arnie's and your Slys, they're basically playing versions of themselves. If we go to the sort of other big hitters like sort of Dirty Harry, Martin Riggs, they're very sort of arrogant not not nasty arrogant but very sort of self-assured if you notice with McLean he's actually a little bit awkward when he has the conversation on the plane he's very awkward with the pastor sat next to him the, the pastor's almost speaking down to him telling him you know it's okay you know to be okay you know scared of flying it's only when he notices the gun and McLean gets to say that he's been a cop for 11 years that he sort of gets some swagger to him if you notice again when he first goes to the Christmas party he's very much a fish out of water obviously straight away anyway but he's again when he's talking to uh, Mr. Takagi, he's kind of a little bit sort of nervous. It's only when he gets introduced to Alice and Alice has been doing the coke that he gets to sort of go back into cop mode. And yeah, you got a little bit left on your lip there, Bell, and stuff like yeah. that. 
if you notice, he's very much living his job. When he's the one thing we've missed though straight away, the little setup, he gets in the uh, limo with our girl. Now a lot of people could look at this and just say it's an exposition dump, but you only get given enough really where he's sort of like, so yeah. why are you here? Yeah, let me guess what's happened. You know, and Argyle sort of call her straight away. And even the way it's sold, he says, do you, do you always ask this many questions, Argyle? He says, hey, you know, this might, you know first time as a limo driver, prior to that he was a cab driver. Obviously, cab drivers, uh, you know, the culture there is to be very chatty with your, you know, with, with your customers. All of that seems completely natural and puts the film in a position where, like you say, it can give this character exposition dump, but it always seems natural. At no time in Die Hard, even though we're given, you know, compared to all, well, 100% of our other action films, you're given far more it character reads, exposition it, it, it than any other time. film I can think yeah. of. It takes his time, but as we'll come to later, it handles pace and editing better than any other action film. It's, it's one of the longer action films, but at no point did my interest dip. And uh, you know, on the recent screen, and we saw you know uh, almost a week ago of it. When I'm watching a film that I'm really into, like Neil, you and me have seen countless films together. Um, you know, same as we've seen films with Jim Cottle, with Richie Roberts, the late um, Jim Cottle, the late Jim Cottle, God rest his soul. Uh, I think it was maybe oh, I think it was was it two years back that um, Steve and I saw Alien Covenant and I I I apologised to him at the end that I I knew that I was actually sort of verbally putting across my sort of disdain for that film whilst watching it and he was actually <laughs> giggling but you know Neil what was I like watching Die Hard we were we were sat in complete silence and we were almost in complete awe and every now and then it'd just be like that sort of like knowing nod to each yeah, other a little, a little nod a little nudge a little sort of well, chuckle straight, straight away I was saying you know I said I love I love the film I love how well constructed it is and I love how it gives you enough of a narrative without being sort of top heavy you know if we look at that again by the time he's actually reached the uh, Nakatomi Plaza he's spoken to himself three times he has when yeah. he collects the bags he's speaking to himself when the girl run, runs past him and jumps into the arms of the other guy California, California he's speaking yeah. to himself yeah. we get into yeah. the building as he's walking down towards the lifts he starts mumbling to himself we get into the argument with Holly she walks out oh, great work John he's already talking to himself yeah. so now it now yeah. it seems that we're not totally shocked when because let's be honest a lot of this film is McLean talking it to is himself. yeah that's right he's actually yeah. acting as the audience isn't he but again, it's, it's already introducing us to this character who will verbalise what he has to do or what That's he's right. done wrong. Yeah. yeah, to, yeah. to touch on a, to another point about the awkwardness, um, if I remember correctly, he so he gets picked up by Argyle in the limo. He doesn't get in the back. He gets in the front. That's yes, right, yeah. he does. He does, yeah. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, typically if you're being picked up, you know, you know, even in a taxi, you know, you're going to get in the back seat, oh, but yeah, he, he gets up in the limo. front and... You know they the you know they kind of build that that little relationship that kind of you know foreshadows some things coming later. Yeah, you know even Argyle, who in any other film would be a throwaway character, you know you sort of sympathise with him you know, with his awkwardness, with the fact that you know this is his first day on the job as a limo driver. You know he doesn't know the protocol, the what sort of the etiquette of 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 ferrying around these sort of high profile people, and luckily for him, the first person he has on you know in his limo is just you know. A regular down to earth street level New York detective. Someone with no airs and graces, someone who is just happy enough to sit in the front and have a chat with this young guy and you know, just sort of befriend him. Yeah, and it just say it fits into that sort of fish out of water mentality we've got. Because yeah. we've got a sort of New York cop who's come to LA now. Like you say, he should really be balling in the back, shouldn't he? In the back of that level, he should be living at large, but he doesn't feel he's worthy of doing That's that. Right. Yeah. But if you notice as well, 
he leaves a lot of his stuff with Argyle. He leaves his bags, he leaves the teddy yeah. bear, the present. Again. He takes his yeah. big ring coat with him just in case it rings. He's in LA, it's not going to ring. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be yeah. cold. You know, but I suppose he's come from New York where at that time yeah. of year would be absolutely freezing. And you know, these little things you're picking up on there, you know, these are things that I've only picked up on having watched the films dozens and dozens of times. But it's that awkwardness, it's the fact that he's preparing himself mentally for this extremely difficult situation with a wife that he's pretty much estranged from. When's the last time he saw his kids? Six, you know, six months. Holly moved to LA six months ago. Um, you know, she's got this job with this, you know, highfalutin, you know, Japanese corporation. But McClay doesn't exactly demand respect. I mean, when, when you say we enter the building, we go into the lobby, the guy who's the sort of, I suppose, concierge type slash security is very sort of non-committal to him. He is, yeah. Because he sort of looks, I suppose he's used to sort of like the high-flying executive types. Yeah. McLean walks in, in an ill-fitting jacket, with a sort of check shirt on, looking yeah. at every, every part the New York copy is. Yeah. And it's like, so, yeah, punch your name in, buddy, it's up there. You know, yeah. get on there. And again, you know, we go to the touchscreen, touchscreen technology, which at the time would have been something that none of us <laughs> right. had seen. But straight away, we also get the exposition straight away. We can see, all right, yeah, he's going through trouble with Holly. She's changed the name. Right, Jacob, satisfy my curiosity on a little thing I picked up on this most recent viewing of Die Hard. Uh, is it LAX that he lands in? I believe so. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. Let's imagine now that the Fox Plaza, which is the actual real-life building where the Nakatomi Plaza uh, you know, was filmed, which we'll come again. We'll come to later. Um, very clever move on Fox's part, filming in their own building. I think they actually charge themselves twice what they usually would, and then claimed it all back on tax returns. If you land in LAX just as sort of dusk is approaching, bear in mind then the length of time it would take to take a taxi cab to uh, wherever Nakatomi Plaza or the Fox building is. Basically, the point I'm trying to get to, Jacob, is this pretty much seems like the longest sunset in the history of film. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm thinking, uh, yep, yeah, okay, that's magic hour. Yeah, um, okay, let, let's just allow for the fact there's heavy traffic, you know, sort of. Um, so, yeah, and what time does the sun set in LA like at Christmas the, time? This is like the thing that only you can well, pick up on. <laughs> it's, the, it's the longest sunset I've ever seen. And I think even when he gets in the building and when he gets to Holly's office, the sun is still setting. I suppose it's because it's easier to backlight, isn't it? I, I know, but <laughs> holy cow, since when does sunset take three hours? Yeah, I mean, again, the continuity of the... I mean, and this happens in a lot of films. You I, know, I don't, uh, Jacob, I, I don't mean this as a nitpick because I love this film more than life <laughs> itself. Jacob, I can only apologize. But come on. <laughs> you know, I've, look, I've been to different parts of the world where the sun does weird things. I've been to the Maldives where, you know, it's like right above you and it's like twice as strong. Is there just a longer sunset in can LA? Can no, more weird because no, Can I just stop you no, it, It's it, fucking it, die hard. <laughs> don't yeah, have see, come on. This, this needs discussion. This needs to be bottomed out. In, in the winter time, so about this time, because we set our clocks, uh, we have you know daylight savings over here. Yeah. Um, and so we set our clocks uh, back, and uh, I believe it's back. Uh, yeah, fall back. So that we set it back, and at this time, you know, right around I would say about five o'clock, it starts getting dark. Yeah. Um, but again, the sunset doesn't last that long, and like <laughs> what, what you were saying, you know the distance that they would have to travel and with the traffic and everything, cause we're notorious for our traffic, you know? Yeah. It would have already, it would already been dark, but, uh, you know, it, they, what they call it, the mad, you know, magic hour or, magic, or something yeah, like that. So, you know, hour. you can get, you can get, you know, get some good, nice shots, you know, of the building behind that sunset. 
Have you have you ever noticed that yourself, Jacob? Because I think I think I'm literally sat next to the only person that's ever found fault with that. <laughs> it's not a fault. It's an observation. You know it's an observation. It's a question I wanted answered from a, for a personal, just from a personal standpoint. Oh my god! <laughs> so I I, um, I, I, I myself, you Neil, know, I've never asked that question, but uh, I kind of um, with movies like this, especially, I miss a lot of those like kind of like logical things because I'm so like into the movie and I'm just being entertained. Like I, I have to kind of what do you uh suspend disbelief for you know for certain things so that stuff doesn't doesn't bother me um you know observation or not i just i'm i'm into the movie and i'm just like following the story and the next you know thing that's coming up it doesn't bother me either jacob i'm just amusing myself with the own with, with my own sort of obscene levels of pedantry so anyway you know this this three-hour magic hour also includes the scene of our terrorists arrive, arriving yes now they arrive in a, I think it's a removals van. A removals van and a 1987 Mercedes E-Class, I believe it is. Right, okay. <laughs> nice. Now, let's, let's talk about the terrorists. Before we get to the masterclass of acting and casting that is Alan Rickman, and God rest his soul, as Hans Gruber, the fact that in a late 80s action film where the main antagonist are terrorists, the fact that instead of using your sort of typical stereotype Middle Eastern terrorists with their, you know, their sort of usual motivations, they actually went for European terrorists of a non-specific sort, you know, you had a group of, uh, you had Germans mainly, but then you had Italians, you had, I think, a Spaniard, um, you know. Al Young. Al Al Young, yeah. And American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Theo, you know, I think I believe Theo's an American. Yeah, yeah, you had Theo's an American. You had Eddie, and you had the guy down in the lobby, the Huey Lewis-looking yeah. guy. Oh, for, uh, the, for, <laughs> the, for the for the longest time, I was convinced that Huey Lewis Huey was Lewis. actually. He does. He does look like Huey now, Lewis. Yeah. Seriously, though, I think I, I I would honestly say I was in adulthood before I realised that wasn't Huey <laughs> Lewis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, see, you've got this sort of this smorgasbord of different <laughs> ethnicities as your group of terrorists. And then I think the ultimate trump card, the Die Hard plays, is, and it, this, this, this is where the masterclass of Die Hard, I think, reaches its peak. If they'd been terrorists and they'd been killing people because of their own sort of twisted political ideals, we would never have had any sort of sympathy for them or we would never have got behind them. But when it turns out that they're just common thieves... But no, they're not common thieves. They're exceptional, exceptional thieves, thieves. yeah. <laughs> That, that, I think, is the genius of Die Hard. Because when you can get behind your bad guys, when you can not so much root for them, but like them, that's when I think you're... You know, you're... Well, this was all down to Matiran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John yeah. actually turned down the film several times because he said yeah. he had no interest in making it. Because to, to begin with, it was going to be a sort of generic sort of mm. sliced alone, slays load of you yeah. know, Eastern European terrorists. And, of course, he was the one who introduced the bankers. Because the thing is, as much as none of us actually like criminals... We all enjoy watching a heist movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. and if you look at that opening scene, you've got the sort of Western Union sort of delivery lorry coming in, mm. the Merc coming in the other way. They pull in an almost formation and then break mm. off in formation. Yeah. And you can sell straight away, you know, from the minute the doors got slide up on the, that lorry, they get out and they're almost walking in a, um, a sort of military fashion. They look so organized. Yeah. Ironically, what I will point out is when that lorry opens up, there's no ambulance behind them. I've never noticed that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the ambulance came out of the, of, of the back of the truck down in the in the basement. And I thought, you know, when that lorry opened, you didn't actually see the ambulance. Do you know what so, that is? What's that? Because they did not actually finish the script when they filmed that scene. Really? They wow. didn't actually know the Holy terrorists were planning to escape. You could just put it down to a little continuity blip, one which I've not picked up on until recently. And, you know, 
yeah, you could go and you could go through with a fine tough comb and sort of nitpick any film like this. Do you know this. what I said to people who criticise that? It's Die Hard. It's fucking Die Hard. It's Die Hard. Sure. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, Jacob, what is your take on on Die Hard's sort of approach to his villains and most importantly the key villain of Hans Gruber? This was my introduction to to Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, who will, in my in my eyes, will go down as one of the best villains of all time. You know, I, I didn't get to see him even later until um, I think Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He, he played uh, uh, was it the Sherwood? Uh, yeah, Sherwood Sher- 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 Nottingham. Nottingham. Yeah. I think that was nineteen ninety one. Yeah, yeah, it was a, f- a few years later, but uh, he was great in that also. But uh, yeah, you know, when I was younger, playing with like toys and and you know like action figures and stuff. I always like kind of were drawn to the the bad guys like the Darth Vaders and you know our GI Joes like you know like the the to me like you know Transformers or whatever they always seem to like look cooler I don't know I was always drawn to them so this like group of of you know as as you guys were discussing of all these different types of uh, ethnicities and they all have like interesting faces and just kind of they all kind of get to get get their little um, pieces into uh, to their character. Um, I thought it was fantastic. You know, I was like totally hooked in, and and I was kind of like, oh, what 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 are these guys gonna do? These this, these guys seem like a you know bad bad motherfucking group. You know, that's like kind of been like a super almost like a super team of, of villains put together. Yeah, um, you've got that sort you know of the best of the best type vibe, but they're all sort of like uber cool as well, aren't they? It's like the opposite of, of Predator. Instead of being like the heroes, you I mean it's like the villain. You know. Um, I don't know if you want to call them like the like in Spider-Man, like they have the Sinister Six or yeah. they have the uh, Legion of uh, what's the Legion? The Legion of of, I, I I thought it was great. You know, they they have like kind of you know all the di- little they have the muscle, they have the you know the people, the brains, they have the you know the technical people, the people that are you know more into the, like uh, you know uh, shooting of like you know the missile launcher or whatever um, or the shoulder missile. So yeah, I, I thought it was great. Yeah, it's almost like you've got a sort of band of sort of mercenaries that have only been brought together basically to pull off this heist. You sort of get the impression that although they perhaps don't know each other all that well, I think Hans and uh, Carl have probably got a bit of history. Yeah. But like you say, with the different sort of backgrounds and sort of ethnicities, it's almost as if they're sort of like mercenaries for hire, but they all work so well together. And that's really demonstrated, like you see with the opening shot, when you get Carl and, uh, oh, I can't remember his name now, the American guy. Uh, Theo. Theo, thank you. Yeah. Walk into the lobby. And then, of course, you've got Theo sort of like going on about some basketball game. He's been watching Kareem overshoots, and then the you know, 16 points from here or whatever. So I, we don't play basketball over here, so I can't do the terminology correct. <laughs> and then you've got Cal just sort of coolly pulls out that sort of silence Luger, two shots to the head. Straight away, you, you can tell these guys are professional killers, but they're very competent at what they're doing. Right, Jacob, again, this is completely um, superfluous to requirements, but the team that Tony's talking about at the time is the team that Magic Johnson was playing for back in 88. Who was that? Lakers. It was the, it was the LA Lakers. There you go. Yeah, Obviously. it's the Lakers. Yeah, it's called right. show, they, called it, they called it Showtime. It was Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, James yeah. Worthy, Kurt Rambis, uh, yeah. Byron Scott. You know, it, course, it's just like... Right. It was the Lakers, yeah. Later on... We get a sort of glimpse of a basketball game. Is that the Lakers game he's talking about? Oh, wasn't he talking about college basketball? I don't um, know. No, it was. Uh, yeah, I think it was college football. Yeah. maybe even. Oh, I'm oh, trying, right. Yeah, I'm trying to think now. Who the hell was um, Eddie referring to? Oh man, I got fifty bucks. On bit, that's Te- nice. I think it was like Texas. I think maybe <laughs> yeah? Texas. Oh. And again, you know, this is com- again. Th- th- this is purely irrelevant but you know it's just for you as, a, as, a, as an American to fill in the blanks on little things which we're obviously not so uh, clued up on but yeah you know like you say 
the, the terrorists, you know, they, there's an extreme sort of depth to them. There's a history between Carl and Hans. Then you've got Tony, Carl's brother. You know, the fact that they look similar, but there's there's an antagonism between them, isn't it? You know, well, you've, you've also got that sort of like the older brother seems to be the irresponsible one. Because I assume that I always assume that Tony's the younger brother, and Tony seems yes. to be very sort of methodical. He's trying to cut the phone lines, he's trying to tap the yeah. lines, and then you get Carl just comes through with, with the, a chainsaw, fuck yeah. off chainsaw, starts yeah. cutting through the tubes, like you know. Apart from obviously Carl and Hans, we don't really get a lot given to us with the others. Nothing, no, nothing but at they, all. They also, they also develop their own sort of little personality straight away. They're not just like heavies in the background, right. do they? Again, you know, perfectly put there. Neil. you've got um, so you've got uh, Al Leong who Uli. plays who plays Uli, who is by far one of the characters given the least amount of screen time out of all you know the, the bad guys in Die Hard. But look at that little moment later on in the film where he's setting up downstairs in the lobby to take out the SWAT guys. And he sees like the little chocolate concession, you know, just underneath yeah. him. Reaches in, grabs a dairy milk and a Mars bar, and he's sort of chomping away on those as you know, <laughs> as Hans is coming over the air, giving him instructions to start shooting at the SWAT guys. It's just a lovely little character moment. Doesn't need to be in the film at all, but it sort of just humanizes these guys. And uh, you know, I'm not going to go as far as to say something like that makes you like them. I think it takes a very sort of if we if we'd had a sort of generic action hero. It would have been very hard to have come out yeah. on top against these guys because, like I say, even the guys in the background who don't have a lot to say and a lot to do sort of carry a sort of presence with them, and they all yeah. sort of fit in. They gel so well that if you'd had, say, like Dolph Lundgren or Chuck Norris roundhouse kicking people, you wouldn't have taken. You, you actually would have been rooting for the bad guys. Yeah, it's only the fact that you've got McLean that actually sells the, you know the film that you know the hero of the film really. And just a just a little side note, um, uh, we were talking about that game. It's USC is playing Notre Dame. Oh, Notre Dame, of course it is. So right. USC, yeah. of course, is uh, you know University of Southern California, and they're playing Notre Dame. And uh, of course, there's a lot of people don't like this that it's in the film because of the continuity because they wouldn't be playing at that time uh, a night game, even though they do play each other during the year. It, it would be more closer to like right. Thanksgiving and whatnot. Yeah. But uh, let's just compare. You know, Die Hard and, and the way it sort of takes time to get you to not so much like, but sort of form this bond with, with, with the bad guys. Let's compare it to something like Commando. You know, let's let's look at you know, let's compare Al Leong's character to say, um, you know, Thomas Rosales Jr. You know, the character that says, um, he says, cutting a little girl's throat is like putting a knife through warm butter. <laughs> and he's the guy then that by the time um, you know Arnie gets to him in the in the now, now classic shed scene where he grabs him and chops his arm off with a machete. At that point, you're just you're just clapping and cheering because this guy's a total scumbag. Um, like the rest of them, they're complete cannon fodder. There's no depth to any of them at all. They're, they're all basically, pretty much they're basically just villains of the week. They, yeah, they're, they're, they're cardboard cutout villains where you're never going to be able to sort of levy that same accusation towards any of the villains in Die Hard. They, they're far more than cardboard cutout. Again, I think that's where the sort of slightly extended running time, certainly for an action film, gives Die Hard the edge over everything else because it's not it's not even the antagonist. It, it's the protagonist. The fact that you've got. You know, Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson. You've got, you know, and, and Reginald Val Johnson as Al Powell, who's like sort of the, the secondary sort of hero of the piece. These characters are given so much time. We either push to dislike them like we are with, you know, Dwayne Robinson, or we're, we're, we're drawn to sort of to, to like them with, with Al Powell when we see him, you know, buying Twinkies for his so-called pregnant wife. <laughs> anyway, and, and the guy behind the counter is like, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, right. Yeah, but right. it is actually for his wife. It is. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. They may well be, but confirms yeah. his wife's making a baby at the last week. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You know. yeah, but uh, but the, even with uh, Hans Gruber, he's portrayed in a way of almost like a polite, you know, very well de uh, well defined criminal. Not yeah. like 
you know, an over the top, you know, he doesn't even like, you know, actually get into a fight with the hero, you know, like he doesn't at any point do any hand to hand combat or anything like that. You know, he's mostly uh, kind of a thinking, a thinking man's villain in the sense where he's um, very clever, picks his words very carefully. And even in the scene where he, you know, uh, with um, uh, Nakatomi that that where he's basically giving him a choice, you know, he, you know, in a way he has to do what he does to kind of uh, let everybody know that he means business. Like, you know, even though he comes off as polite and cordial and, you know, will sit with you, you know, he still has, you know, he still puts action behind his words. Well, I, I gotta be honest with that. I've, I've always thought he's a very sort of cool, self-assured, but over the last couple of years, it's come to occur to me that perhaps he's not actually what he's what he claims to be. Because if you notice, when they do the sort of um, the sort of TV report, they show a picture of him from his sort of terrorism days, and he looks quite sort of like shabbily dressed. His hair's a mess. He doesn't look as coiffured, you know. And it's almost that thing with him where a lot of sort of eighties is either greed is good, Wall Street, yeah, or we got the mm-hmm. flip side of it with a sort of OCP from RoboCop, where you know this corporate sort of world is cutthroat and bad. He almost seems to want to be part of that. And if you notice, he. I mean, when he first announces, you know, the reasons for taking the the hostages, he reads the file of facts. He uses it almost as a Bible. Mm. Say with Tatagi there, he instantly has to point out that he knows where his suit was made. He's got one himself. When he sees the model of the build, of the building that's being made in Panama, he says, oh, the benefits, he does the sort of Alexander quote, and he says, the benefits of a classical um, education. Yeah. It's almost like as if he's trying to assure people that he is this educated man. And I've always had this thing about Hans Gruber, is he actually what he claims to be, or is he someone who it's, it's had, like, yeah. had, had morals, had the sort of you know terrorism, you know sort of group that he was behind? You know they thought they were fighting for a cause, and all of a sudden just thought, no, I just want to be really rich. Actually, yeah, it's like it's like a self-imposed status that he isn't actually sort of being gifted by his upbringing. Because yeah, like you say, he makes a point of of, of pointing out the fact that you know he, he gets his suits from the same place, John Phillips in London, where you know apparently Arafat buys his. There little lines like that. Oh yeah. It was on that, you know, when we saw it last week, and you've got that scene later on in the film where he's making notes in his file of facts. What the, at that point, right, having perfectly plotted this this sort of watertight plan to get, you know, the six hundred and fifty million in bearer bonds from from Nakatomi, what is he then making notes for? He's it's like as if he wants to be taken seriously. It is, yeah, and you know, I, I've never sort of thought much in you know about that. That so I see a little of, sort of black and white sort of still we see of him on the news when they say he almost looks like a hipster. Like he looks it, like a hipster, yeah. like like Clarence Bodiger and Robocop with his if, little necktie. If we go back to the sort of we're jumping way ahead now to the end of the film where McLean and him actually come face to face. Yeah, when he falls down and looks up, all of a sudden his hair's fallen down and he's got the same look. Yeah, and instantly he sort of quaffers it back. You know, he has to sort of keep himself. Yeah. And if you notice, even the way he shoots again, the way he handles again, he almost slides with the gun in his. Yeah, it's like, it's like sort of doing Roger Moore. Yeah, as James yeah. Bond. It's like as if he was to be taken seriously as this sort of dapper sort of serious yeah. sort of criminal mastermind and he probably is let's be honest yeah but it's it's almost like he surrounded himself with all these sort of cool hip mm. guys so he'll look even cooler but that's you not know, to take anything away from that no, no, no. i think he's fucking amazing but, but you know but again he's even he's scamming the fbi by making himself out to be this sort of high-end terrorist with these big sort of global political goals he wants to achieve like freeing you know liberate the Kurt, 
the Quebec, Quebec and the, you know, the, the, the Asian Dawn movement. Asian Dawn. And, and yeah, you know, again, little moments like that are perfect where, where you've got Carl mouth into him, Asian Dawn. Yeah, I read about them in Time magazine. But again, he's like sort of reinforcing to Carl there. He reads, he's, he's, yeah, he's, it, he's keeping abreast of current events. He, he knows all these things that, you know, you don't know who Asian Dawn is. I do because that's I That's right. It. Because he, it's he the also ul- mentions Forbes magazine later he on. He does, yeah. It, it's the ultimate con job. He has basically taken materials which are probably available to most people at the time. He, he's absorbed them and then he's worked out the fact that, yeah, an opportunity exists here with the right people to go into this, you know, American building that's sort of run by a Japanese corporation and fleece them of these bearer bonds, which I can trade on the open market. And, you know, basically, you know. But again, classic sort of criminal would be we're going to do the heist and then we're going to live the high life. What did he say to Theo? We're going to be laying on the beach earning twenty percent on yeah. this. He's like as if he's a you know I'm this sort of sharp businessman. Yeah, and it's always like you. Sorry, Jake. I'm going to say a reference you wouldn't you have no bearing on you at all. Del boy, only fools and horses over here. Yeah. Was a sort of market street trader. He was, yeah. And then after Wall Street, he, he wanted to become a yuppie, didn't he? That's right. And he yeah. used to walk around with his filer facts and his you know, yeah. this sort of business mark on yeah. and carrying his briefcase, which he probably had his sandwiches in. Yeah, I'm not saying Hans Gruber's. That, that sort of phony but this time round it suddenly dawned on me he's actually like you say he's conning the FBI he's conning the hostages is he conning us is, is it, he conning yeah. us as is, well is it like this sort of wannabe element to the guy doesn't that make him like kind of so you, you to your point you know he's access to common materials that everybody has access to but he is able to through his cleverness he's able to craft up a plan and let let's be honest it would have worked if john mcclane you know wasn't there you know they would have got uh, it theoretically got away with it scot-free um and he would have been earning 20 percent on you know in, on the islands it's just so, yeah it's just oh, as he says see. jacob he says i'm the fly in the ointment the monkey in the wrench the pain in the yeah. ass he's the one thing that no amount of planning could have factored in the fact that one of the guests or, or of, of one of the people in this office party happened to be a new york cop well you see if you look at hans's sort of sort of initial thing is it's probably just like a rogue security guard some overweight ex-cop yeah he's not really bothered because like you say jacob i'm not you know saying a if anyone's listening to this thinking in any way that I'm sort of getting down on Hans Gruber, I'm not. It just adds depth to the character. It makes it even Absolutely. more awesome to me than the things yeah. I would say. He's, he is a criminal mastermind. I would I would have to agree with that. And even he even makes a, a funny quip at the end where uh, when Holly, um, not to jump ahead, but uh, when Holly is kind of giving him trouble and he's like telling her, you know, you should be nicer to me because I'm going to move on to kidnapping. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't think that he's actually going to do that. Like, I think this is... His plan is to kind of be one and done and live off his mind, in a sense, by crafting this plan with all these these bonds that he, you know, and, and just live off the fat of the of the interest. Yeah, there's almost that thing that you see, you get to that sort of, we're jumping, we're jumping all over the shop now, but let's, oh, yeah, let's yeah, say yeah. the terrorists take over. We'll, we'll just go through it, right? The, te- the so-called terrorists come into the building, they shoot the place up a bit, don't really hurt anyone, mm-hmm. yeah? McLean is in the bathroom having just argued with Holly. Yeah. We get the... Because it's the eighties, we get this sort of mandatory sort of brief titty shot of a young couple yes, you know, engaging in some yeah, ex- right. party antics. Yeah, but a bit of an office party coitus. A bit of office party coitus, which would be in any other film just a setup for we're going to see some nipple, a little bit of yeah. side boob, and that yeah. would be enough. This actually causes Marco to look the other way. Yeah, John McClane gets to escape. So he does. we get John yeah. McClane. John McClane ran up the stairs. If hadn't been for that, John McClane would have never got out of that bathroom. He would have been yeah, one of the hostages right. to their barefoot. Well, he 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 might have not have got it. Well, 
he could have got out of the bathroom, but it would have been some. It would have been a gunfight, you yeah. know. And then yeah. you know he would his expo- his position would have been exposed. And, exactly. You know, we yeah. got a totally different movie now. So you so see, we get we get Hans then takes over. He does his little speech about the the corporate greed of uh, Nakatomi Towers and uh, the business in general from his file of facts, which I say to me is almost like a preacher stood there reading from a Bible. It is. It is <laughs> the way. That's right. He gets the book out. He puts it on the table and he, he kind of goes through that speech, doesn't he? To, yeah, to ladies Takagi. and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. In the words of a, of a great man, it's die hard. It's die, it's hard. die hard. Oh, yeah. But it, it, again, it, you know, it works perfectly because it's like as if he's preaching to this crowd and he's, he's giving them little bits of information and then he's telling them no. everything about Joseph Takagi. Basically, providing the ideals of the original Gruber in the book. Yeah. Yeah, he's going to rob from the rich. He's going to give That's to the poor. Right. This is where we get a little flip side now. Where no, he's not going to rob from the rich and give to the poor. He's going to rob the rich and live off twenty percent while he's laying exactly. on the beach for the rest of the That's guys. That's right. Hey, yeah. maybe he was poor. Maybe yeah. he was poor, and maybe he's giving to himself. So yeah, that's, in, in, in yeah. essence, it all works. He is doing that. Let, 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 Jacob, let's have a look here on the grand scheme of things. These guys have come in here with a rental van, a stolen ambulance, a load of machine guns that probably you know they could have gone the black market for a fairly decent price. It's not like they've come in here with gunships and you know. You know, again, right. you know, they're, they're, they're immaculately dressed, granted. But, you know, they've come in with the bare minimum stuff to a, a, a attain the, the maximum goal of, you know, a, a hideous amount of money. And, you know, from that point of view, there's, there's a little bit of you that the kind of is with them. And you sort of get the impression they're all ex-military. They're all people who have perhaps... Yeah. You know, serve you know their country. Well, or, certainly, Carl yeah. is ex-military, yeah. no doubt at all. Carl is a killing well, machine. Well, just the formation, the way they, the, the way they mm-hmm. sort of move in. That none of these guys are gangbangers. They all know what they're doing. Oh, they're they're no. military trained guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. None of them are shooting their guns held sideways. Well, even even Tony, the fact that he's relaying to the rest of the guys over the radio what the SWAT police are doing. He says, um, you've got the, the, Theo. Theo, sorry. You've got you know the four assholes coming in by the rear in standard two by two cover formation. That is military speak. That he's is not tactical a, yeah, speak. He's not a tech Correct. guy. Yeah. Brought, he's he, not a tech guy. That's brought right. In. He's a tech guy, but he's a tech guy with military background knowledge and the ability to convey to these other military guys. We're assuming tactically what their enemy are doing. Yeah. You know, these you know these these guys are trained like like. John McLean says over the radio, they're trained, they're well armed. Everything about them says that they're they're a tight knit group. And then you know we say, yeah, there's a couple other two things. Sorry to cut you off. A couple other things though too. He knows when the FBI is going to get involved. They know to shoot out the lights, um, you know, because they know that that's a tactic. That uh, you know, shutting out the power, shooting out the you know, shining the lights on them. These are tactics, you know. uh, Even though they're police are uh, you know uh, tactics, but associated with military tactics so they know all these things they're very well versed in all you know what's going to happen next you know in the basically the terrorist handbook you know the next steps uh, you know if we do this they're going to do this and none of them are really disturbed by it. you sort of get the impression that group is sort of sold a plan to him and is now working apparently on the fly but he's like we say he's, he's already planned plan b he takes the kagi upstairs i'm going to count to three there will not be a four yeah great part about this for me not enough for me to take his character He's played as a very sort of Western sort of character. Yes. yes. We couldn't beat you guys at Pilt Harbor. So we, we got t- you, yeah. Go you with tape decks, yeah? yeah. He's very sort of um, Americanized, let's he's, say that. He's, he's, well, he's got an American accent, hasn't he? Right. He knows the code to that safe. He does, I know. But he doesn't give it up. Why not? Because almost like a samurai, he's got to defend his company's honor. That's right. 
and you're just gonna have to kill me. Which is crazy because they're, they're most likely they're insured. They're insured, yeah. Just it's just like Robert De Niro's character says when they're doing the bank heist in Heat. Don't worry about it, everyone. Your money's insured. Your bank's money, yeah. insured. It's yeah. not your money. And it, this would be exactly the same for you know, a Japanese corporation operating in America like Nakatomi. They'd be insured at the backside. But he's got that sort of honor. honor. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, again, when we were watching it last week, I, I'm sat there thinking, what is Takagi's motivation here? Why is he willing to give up his life for this? If you and, notice as well, he goes to when he asks for Takagi again, Hans Gruber again showing how well educated he is. Mm -hmm. Father of five, graduated from this college, yeah, went to yeah, that. Yeah. You know, he, he reels off his life story. He, he does. Takagi's going to step forward straight away. Holly stops him. There are three other Asian-looking gentlemen who all, at some stage, consider falling on the sword for him by pretending to be Takagi. And how many times have we seen yeah. that in the film where someone pretends to be? You know, and then and at this point, Takagi's like, no. I think when did we? Was it in Superman Two where you've got those <laughs> people in in the White House pretending to be the president, and General Zod sort of rumbles them and says, "No one who was a leader of a great country would kneel that easily." Yeah. You know, we've seen that before, but you know, Die Hard doesn't fall foul of the same sort of tropes as as you know as we'd come accustomed to in 1988. It was it was sort of carving its own niche. It was stepping up to the plate. It was doing so many more things that other action films of the time weren't doing to sort of solidify his position as, I'll be quite frank, like I've said, the greatest action film of all time. Can I uh, say maybe a theory I have of, of why Takagi takes, you know... Oh, please, please yeah, go please on. do. So what, what I was thinking was is that there, it's, in a, it's in a vault that's very highly secured, you know, with the, high, the, the highest security. I think maybe, maybe Takagi was thinking that because there's basically no, you can't, you can't get your, get in any way, you know, like even drilling your way through or, or anything like that. There's no way to get in this, this highly secured uh, area. So they need him. They, they're not going to kill him because they need that code. Cause that's the only way to get in. Yeah. But he doesn't know that, you know, Rickman, uh, I'm sorry, Gruber is their plan is to drill through. And then on the last one, when they cut the power that resets everything. And then that basically in a turn opens the door so maybe his motivation is is that oh they can't kill me because they you know I'm the only one that knows the code and if they really want the money they they they're gonna have to keep me alive and you know whatever beat it out of me or whatever it is or you know ho hopefully we get saved by then that's maybe the only yeah. you know thing. Yeah. Do you know that? Yeah, that absolutely, Jacob. That's probably his only way out because as soon as he tells them the code, he doesn't know Hans Gruber. He's got you know he, he sort of had this sort of nice bit of chit chat with him. Yeah, he may well think, yeah, I've got what I need from this guy now and kill him. Or he might think, yeah, as soon as they hit that sixth lock and that you know electromagnetic seal falls down, they're going to need me. And he still thinks he's dealing with a terrorist. That's right. He think, yeah, he so thinks he's dealing with a terrorist yeah. bank on hostages. Absolutely. So like, like Jacob said, it's very astute. Yeah, Jacob, you turn my theory upside down, mate. He's not a, he's not a noble samurai warrior. He's a, he's a guy who's actually very shrewd and bad. Yeah, at, at that point, it becomes a game of chess and you know Takagi is the king or the queen of that chess table isn't he i said i'd be uh, referring to the book throughout rather than going through the whole story of the book the yeah. model of the bridge in panama is the main story setting for nothing lasts forever basically the klaxon oil company have made a sizable amount of money through traded arms over that bridge in panama and that bridge that the right. hands refers to is Got the you. bridge that's mentioned in nothing lasts forever so anyway we see Tatagi get shot and it's quite a sort of but yeah, at that point, then we know that you know this guy means business. He is willing to cold-bloodedly kill this guy 
And this is the point where I think, really, you see the first look of fear on McLean's face. Yeah. And at this point, I think he thinks he can handle it. Yeah, it's it's a shock moment. You know, we see the guy's brains hit that glass. It is nasty. It is. And, you know, I think, you know, back when I was, however old I was when I first saw it, and I think uh, early 89, you know, that that moment did shock me. Yeah. And and it sort of makes you think, yeah, these guys absolutely mean business. And again, we move into the first bit of dialogue then. Why'd you do it, John? Because otherwise you'd be dead like him, John. Why are you trying to save him, John? Straight away, we're getting that sort of flawed personality, uh, that sort of flawed character that McLean is, where he's accepting the fact that there's only so much he can do. He's not yeah. a superhuman. And what's his first thing? Is he going to try and kill off various terrorists? No. Is he going to take them out one mm-hmm. by one? Is he going to snap their scrawny necks from behind? No, he's going to pull the fire alarm and hope that someone comes to help him. But yeah, he, in fact, even before that, he does reconnaissance of the floors directly above them. And it, you actually listen to him. He's actually saying, so yeah, you know, 32's under construction, 33 is this, that, whatever. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not getting that exactly right. But, you know, it shows that he has got this sort of street-level cop sensibilities mixed with the fact that, yeah, you know, he is a detective of you know, God knows how many years. He is systematically, in his mind, formulating the plan both to stay alive and to give him invaluable information he needs ultimately just you know to, to take he, these guys down he basically wants to be the guy at the scene who's directing the troops in absolutely want yeah. To be the, yeah and that's not to do any disservice to john mclean at all like he's basically like jacob was saying he's an everyman he's a realistic hero isn't he yeah yeah i mean he has the like uh, as sky has said before he's got vulnerability you know like he can be hurt he might not always make the right choices you know like you know even when he's talking with his wife you know he, you know kind of beats himself out about it you know like why am i going to get into another fight so Again, it becomes a relatable character to the viewer of, hey, I can see, you know, myself, you know, in this situation. And I'd hope I'd have the, you know, the, the smarts and the, the brains uh, to be able to think of these little things of, you know, um, you know, writing the names down of, of, the, of the terrorists on his arm and, and, you know, like, you know, what floor is doing what and, you know, what the what the plan is and, and getting the CV radio and all that stuff. So. You know, again, it, to me, you know, he becomes a, a lot, you know, more and more relatable as the film goes on. Well, I was going to say, because he pulls the fire alarm, the fire engines are coming, they get cancelled straight away. Come to Papa, I'll kiss your fucking Dalmatian. Yeah. Never got that as a kid. Never realised that American fire trucks have Dalmatians. Didn't realise that. It's only until I saw Paw Patrol, the kids' cartoon, <laughs> yeah, where, where Marshall, Marshall, Marshall the Fire Dog is a Dalmatian, and that's when I finally made that connection. Literally, I used to think yeah. all the time. Oh, what? so that, that, is that an American thing? Yeah, it's an American thing. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> From pulling the fire alarm, we get Tony comes upstairs. He's going to find this rogue security guard, and we get the basis of perhaps the greatest rivalry ever made, because the first thing McLean's going to do to Tony, he's going to arrest him. Absolutely. Drop the gun, dickhead. It's the cops. You won't kill me. You won't hurt me or a policeman. There are rules for policemen. So my sergeant keeps telling me. Captain, captain keeps telling sorry. me. Yeah. <laughs> so my captain keeps... Yeah. So we get this brief fight. The two of them rolling down the stairs. He doesn't mean to break his neck. No, no. He breaks he, his neck almost by accident. He does, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. But again, straight away, we've got Hans Gruber versus John McClane <coughs> at the latter stages of this film. Yeah. From this point on, Carl's out for blood. That's right. And, you know, what then does John McClane do that you could argue is questionable he could just dispose of of, of of Tony's body discreetly and leave him thinking oh where the hell's Tony but what he does is he puts him in a chair gets some um, you know red pen or lipstick or whatever he uses and writes on his jumper and you know wraps him up in Christmas tape and sends him downstairs in the elevator what you know what is the 
Well, it's like Jacob was saying, he's part of a reconnaissance mission now because he's he's needing the work out now. What you've got to think is, he's only seen actually two of these terrorists. True, yeah. When he escapes, it's... Uh, well, no, 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 he's, he's opened the door, he's, he's seen, seen, he's seen, he's seen Marco, Marco. And he's and seen the guy who was a Ghostbusters too. Who's yeah, that's right. Now, James is his character's yeah. name in this. Yeah. Only yeah, but I, I think I think he knows he's not in a normal situation. Oh yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, yeah. because uh, as he's going through Tony's stuff, you know, he he's 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 like um, I think he says something about the cigarettes, like oh these are you know German Anything? cigarettes are bad for you, you know the, he has explode you know he has explosives, you know he, he has all the you know these are like this is not normal you know the weapons that they have this is not normal you know like just uh, American you know uh, robbery. This is, you know, these guys mean business. This is what I was coming to. I think that's when Sky was sort of questioning why he sent Tony down in the uh, in the elevator. I think it's because after killing Tony, he realizes he's up against a good team here. Mm-hmm. And it, right. It's like straight away, like you say, the, the great part when he's on top of the lift, writing down the names of how many people are there. You know, straight away, he's trying to gather more information now because it's gone from being a very serious situation to a disastrous situation. For Absolutely, him. yeah. Now he knows he's up against something that a lot, like Jacob was saying, a lot more than just a robbery. Yeah. He knows he's up against an organized sort of unit here, doesn't he? And, he, you know, he can't go in guns blazing, can he? Plus the reinforcements that he thought he was going to get from the police, you know, when he pulled the fire alarm, when they turned around, he knows that, okay, somehow they're diverting that. So it's me in essence, it's me versus this, these, these people until the cops get involved, which yeah. they might never, you know, um, but I'm going to try. But, you know, like you said, he's doing the recon- reconnaissance and and he's trying to give himself as much. He's at he's at a big disadvantage because he's just one man. He's barefoot. He's just have his, you know, his gun or whatever guns he's able to get from the terrorists. But he's trying to, you know, lessen that disadvantage by doing these little things. You, you mentioned obviously the backup that's come in in the form of you know first the LAPD then the FBI Jacob what is your sort of view of how Die Hard portrays the police in this film because to me they almost kind of make jackasses out of some of them but then put others the sort of low level beat cops like Al and John McClane in sort of the lofty positions of the hero I think it's you know I'm, I'm I've, I've never served in the police force and you know it's a hard job but I think like any, I think any company or any job, you have, you know, you have your, you know, your higher ups or your, you know, kind of uh, leaders, and then you got your people that are just doing the, you know, maybe the day to day grunt work. You know, it's that old thing, you know, uh, you know, too many chiefs, not enough Indians, kind of thing, where you know can't work that way. Someone like John McClane or even like uh, Sergeant Al Powell. And they allude to this. They probably should be higher up on the rank. You know, they're they're smart guys and they're resourceful guys and they probably should be higher up on the rank. But their parts of their personality are things that they've done in the past. You know, whether it's it's McLean not getting along with his superior officer or whatever. So that's holding him back or uh, Al Powell, who um, tells the incident about the um, the kid with the gun um, that he shot. You know, that's held that's held him back in a way. So he's this now beat cop. And then you have Dwayne T. Robinson, the deputy police chief. I've worked at many companies where I, I see people at a higher level and I'm like, how the fuck did they get that job? <laughs> this guy's a, you know, this person's a moron or they, they yeah. just don't they don't they don't have the, the I don't know how they got it. So yeah, he could have the benefit of, of, you know, knowing the right people or maybe he's the son of. Uh, some lineage of of a of a you know a police chief or whatever, so he's kind of put in that position. Um, but I I think it works well with the film because you're able to kind of it's kind of like comic relief and it kind of like like sticking it to the man in a, in a way where the the lower level people are doing 
the majority of the of the thinking and the work and not this this guy who has power but doesn't really have the brains and who in a sense is like shit for brains and i, I think it kind of empowers the viewer because again it's am i going to relate more to these people or am i going to relate more to the boss yeah and again like you say with um al powell and uh mclean they almost instantly sort of form a bond there don't they it's like as if they realize straight like al definitely picks up on the fact that john's a cop yeah John obviously knows right. he's a cop, but they both sort of got that thing where you think you're a good guy. They've also yeah. got that sort of almost understanding of each other straight away. They're very similar That's sort right. of personalities in that respect, aren't they? Yeah, And definitely. like you see, the respect for authority seems to be there if it needs to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, in both situations, a pair of them would be quite happy for yeah. you know deputy chief to come in and take over, but it's just the fact that you're not doing it properly, sir. Yeah. So I need to speak over you. Yeah, that's right. And as soon as, you know, you know Dwayne Robinson, played by you know, the late Paul Gleason from um, The Breakfast Club, breakfast turns up, you know, yeah, he very quickly establishes himself to be a bit of an a-hole. And at that point then, you know, McLean and Powell start to sort of, you know, show a bit of dissension towards him. Going back before that, then to the bit where, where Al Powell first turns up, he, you know, we gets the call from dispatch to investigate this, you know, possible false call from Nakatomi Plaza, and then he turns up, and you've got that scene of how is John McLean going to get the attention of this cop, the several stories below. At which point, you know, the rest of the guys pretty much work out where he is, and you've got that amazing scene where Heinrich and Marco, where Heinrich and Marco go and confront him. Now, and then this leads on to something I think. It's like a three-pronged thing that Dyard does better than any other film of his type. It's the racket of tension. It's the explosive action. In fact, it's four things because you've got what I think is pretty much flawless editing. And then you've got the music on top by Michael Kamen. I'm going to give you five things. Go on. It's also got locations. That's right, now, yes. This, with this, this boardroom... Mm-hmm. With the strange ziggy zag table, yeah, is where Takagi gets killed, and you sat there thinking, Why have you got this strange ziggy zag table? And again, after Marco comes in, don't shoot, don't shoot. Heinrich tries to flank him, come behind. McLean takes Heinrich out, dives under the ziggy zag table, yeah, which allows Marco to walk along the top of the table, chasing him up, shooting at him, yeah. Now, let's say straight away, so you go, Ah, that's the boardroom where Takagi got killed. Straight away, you can see the blood on the carpet, so you know where you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a definite sense of geography in Die Hard. You've got this, you know, eighty-story building or whatever it is. You know, most of the action takes place on four or five floors at the most. But yeah, at no point are you ever confused as to where you are, uh, you know, where, where you know, you you get a rough idea as to where characters are in relation to each other because McTiernan has taken time to carefully plot out the stories about to tell. And, you know, that whole scene of, you know, you're done, no more table, where are you going, pal? Good. Yeah, you could argue it's a bit of a cheesy line he finishes off with, with thanks for the advice. But, you know, it's, that whole scene is just, it's just jaw-dropping, breathless action. And, and then... When the left Bruce Willis death passed did, death then, yeah, year. because, yeah, they, he was firing, um, you know, bl- blank rounds from a, a Barata 9-2F. And, yeah, it, it left him partially deaf. But then you, you, you've got then, what's he going to do next? He's got to get Al Powell's attention, and then Al Powell gets back in the car. He's got that line of, who's driving this fucking car, Stevie Wonder? Which yeah, <laughs> probably wouldn't play so well you these days. You, you wouldn't fly today. You, they, they <laughs> that wouldn't fly today. You know, God, you know, making fun of a blind man is just, it's not, it's not to be done. But, you know, this was 1988. So, yeah, and then, you know, he chucks Marco's body out of the building, and then you've got even more amazing action of, you know, that whole thing of, of Al Powell going over the dispatch radio. This is, you know, Abe Lincoln 30, you know, they're turning my car into Swiss cheese. 
It's incredible. And perhaps one of the most iconic lines, welcome to the party, pal. I, I wish I was that witty if I was in that situation. <laughs> do you know the best thing with me, Jacob? Right? I'd have a chance to do something cool like that. I'd do it. And about two days later, I'd think up of welcome to the party, pal. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'd be in the shower about two days later going, oh, shit, I knew I should have said but, you know, that's, that's, again, another thing that it sort of endures us to, to John McClane, the fact that he's not superhuman. But he's always got his wits about him and these little witty quips, which, you know, we who's, who's he talking to? Again, who's he talking yeah, to? Himself. himself. Himself, yeah, absolutely. He's actually narrated his own action scenes. Yeah, like as if, you know, the adrenaline of the situation has carried him through and, you know, he's trying to start, stay on top of things knowing that at the drop of a hat, these guys could kill him. And that'd be it. I think it was, was it the last episode we did favourite film scores? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Yes, yeah, right. So. You know, we all thought long and hard, and obviously, you know, you yourself gave your um, your list of your five favorite film scores, and it's only since uh, Neil and I saw Die Hard in the cinema last week that I've actually finally found. Um, you know, the, the Die Hard score is so hard to get hold of. You know, I've actually been listening to it on YouTube of all places. It's not on Spotify. It just amazes me that when people are talking about great film scores. Michael Kamen's score for Die Hard doesn't get more recognition than it does. I'm not saying it's a, a film score that you could just listen to on its own away from the film, but when you put it in the film, I think it is as effective a film score as as I've ever heard. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, if the if the movie didn't have it, it definitely would lessen the movie, in my opinion. It, it, it definitely adds a lot to the movie. I think maybe the reason it gets kind of forgotten about is that at least in, in my opinion, there's so many great elements to Die Hard that it kind of takes a backseat, even though it's like having a report card with uh, all A pluses, but one A minus, you know, and, you know, so I agree with you. It, it's it's great. And it you definitely it's something I, you know, I can listen to uh, on repeat, you know, and totally kind of take me into the movie into in the different scenes through, through the different themes. Um, but again, you know, you have all these different elements in this action movie that work so well. Unfortunately, I think it kind of gets lost in, in that shuffle. And do you think, Jacob, is maybe the fact that you think of films like, let's try and keep it within a similar ballpark then, films like uh, Robocop, Predator, films of a similar sort of action sort of genre, which have got clearly identifiable you know, musical themes. I don't think, I think because there's not, you know, a particularly memorable theme running through the music of Die Hard. Maybe that's why it doesn't get the credit. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, I think you know maybe Die Hard is more like one of these workmanlike film scores that it services the film perfectly, but maybe doesn't or hasn't sort of stood on its own away from the film like a lot of film scores have. Like certainly more iconic ones like you know Jaws and Superman and you know Back to the Future film scores, which sort of Indiana Jones so films where you 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 mention the film. And you can immediately think of the music. But even if you were going, to, even if you were going in the action genre, there, if you look at sort of Jerry Goldsmith's Rambo theme, yeah, Sylvester's Predator theme, yeah, we've oh, what was the other one I just thought of? This number just totally got out of my head. Commando, another great uh, uh, James Horner, yeah, James Horner, yeah, right. with, the, with the steel but drums, now, yeah, they're all sort of very sort of powerful sort of you know yeah. melodies that run throughout the film. Whereas mm-hmm. with Cayman's work, it's almost sort of generic because the same year he brought out the soundtrack, the soundtrack for um, License to Kill the Bond film. He did, yeah. And the soundtrack on that is very similar as well with that sort of string sort of. He did. He did it eighty nine in the year after. Yeah, sorry. Like you say, it's not actually a theme tune. It's no, more it's not. Incidental it's right, yeah. music. The actual theme tunes where it's probably Old Joy by Beethoven, isn't it? Yeah, it's it is. It is. Yeah, of course. What I yeah. mean is, 
you have you haven't got a sort of Indiana Jones sort of recognition to a McLean. No. It's not McLean's tune. You know, like you were saying, Neil. Maybe that also the t- so when a score, you know, like some of those, like a Superman or a Empire Strikes Back. You know, they they lend themselves uh, heavily to like horns or like very loud uh, instruments that kind of like grab you in the, in the theme. And this one's kind of has more of a, a a quieter underlining theme to it. So I think scores like, you know, that have like that trumpet sound or, or you know, kind of start off with that or like, you know, loud drums and drumming or things, they kind of, they grab the viewer uh, or the listener in a different way than something that kind of is very uh, under the radar, like this score. This is almost like an accompaniment rather than like you say, than trying to sort of demand your attention, isn't it? And, and like you say, then you'll, you know, the classical music that's woven into the into the film, you know, like when he gets into the lobby of the Nakatomi Plaza, you know, we've got classical music here being played by the orchestra. There's a lot of... But it's all Ode Joy, it's all different parts of Ode Joy. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of diegetic music, music which is, which is actually playing in the film. You've got characters humming music. Okay. Yeah, like when he's when he's walking to the elevator at the beginning, and then when you've got um, isn't Hans Gruber when he's in the lift with Takagi? Is he, he humming music as well? He hums all the joy. And then you've got you've got obviously you know um, Argyle is playing Skeletons by Stevie, Stevie Wonder. Wonder of all people. Who's driving this car? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 Run DMC. Yeah, Run DMC. The, uh, yeah, uh, well, uh, Christmas in Hollis. He seems to have. He yeah. seems to have. Christmas in Hollis, he definitely has. Yeah, on CD. That's in the car. And I think he has one other CD, and that's Skeletons by Stevie Wonder, which he plays on repeat for about yeah, 45 right. minutes. He does, yeah. every, time, every time we come back to our Kyle, <laughs> by the last CD, he's still listed yeah. the same Stevie Wonder song, so he really likes Skeletons. It's a great song. It is a great song. It's a what, great song. Which, which, which connects it to the line that McLean used that, you, that we were just talking about of who's driving this car, Stevie Wonder. Yeah. yeah. Skeletons. Yeah. Exactly. It, it all links in perfectly. It does. <laughs> And again, talking about things linking in perfectly, let's look at the editing of the film. Now, Jacob, obviously, I think you've, you've listened to pretty much all of our episodes now. You've totally well, stumped every, every couple of episodes, Neil and I certainly like to mention a, a, a few, you know, a certain few films. I mean, you guys talk about Commando, Cobra, you know, Lord of the Rings films that, you know, I get here mentioned a lot. Let me get three in through the door now, right, in relation to Die Hard. It's edited by two people. John F. Link, apart from Commando, John F. Link, he edited Predator and Roadhouse. Wow. Roadhouse is a oh, Roadhouse. Yeah, which, Roadhouse. Which, yeah, Neil likes to drop Roadhouse in as much as he can. The other editor was Frank J. Uriost, who edited Robocop. So if we can get Dark Angel, or I Come in Peace, as uh, American listeners will, will know it as, into this podcast as well every episode I have to profess my love for Sylvester Stallone I have to profess my love for uh, Tom Cruise uh, Tom Cruise yeah I like to tell you that I don't really like Tom Cruise but I I do like Tom Cruise yeah Um, you haven't done that for a while I know I haven't done that for a while actually I'll always have to drop in Stallone Night Hawks and of course I have to mention the greatest sci-fi action that's never mentioned if you live over here you know where it's Dark Angel in the rest of the international world it's known as I Come in Peace starring not only the powerhouse Comeback kid of Dolph Lundgren, but uh, one of the greatest bad guys of all time in Matthias Hughes. Matthias yes. Hughes himself, my friend on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you know the, the the editing of the film. It, it, you know where do you even begin? There's there's a pace to Die Hard that you know, like we said, it takes his time with exposition, with character building, but at no time does it ever give you those things at the detriment of building up the tension, unleashing the action, which is always just expertly filmed and you know by this point John McTeer then he'd cut his teeth on Predator I think his, his only film prior to that was Nomads yeah. which was a, a little scene 1986 film I, I believe yeah 
you know, I think it was it was it was Craig R. Baxley who did the action on Predator, who was the director of Dark Angel. There Dark you Angel, go. We brought Dark right. Angel. We've got it in. Right. <laughs> so he, you know, again. You know, Sorry, Jacob, if you've not seen Dark Angel or Come in Peace, I can't recommend it highly enough. This film well it's worth it's watching. It's a great film. Yeah, great film. So yeah, you know, he's he, he's shown his action credentials there, but I think Die Hard takes things to another level altogether aided by the fact that you've got it in a confined space of a building and you know to take things back to like you know 1974 the tower in inferno it's basically there's definite elements of disaster movie you've got a big gorgeous tall building like that and, and everything goes wrong and ultimately you know the building ends up on fire doesn't it again several floors blown out but you've got that confined space you've got the action happening over a sort of sort of confined period of time over one night i think originally in the script it was going to be three nights yeah but john the book, McTee, the book's actually in the book yeah mcteen and cleverly jumped all over that and said no this is this has got to happen over the course of one night you, you go from one scene to another even though in between that you've got extended scenes of dialogue between john mclean and al powell between mclean and dwayne robinson you know you've got all this action happening on the ground but you're always drip fed just enough action to sort of keep you engaged. Everything works perfectly. The script, the casting, the, the dialogue, you know, well, from well, that script and its delivery is just it's flaw you know, we haven't even come to characters like I was Ellis. Gonna say, no, I was gonna say Ellis. we're talking about characters now, straight away we've got yeah. let's go through it. We've got Takagi straight away, we've got Gruber, McLean himself obviously, yeah. Holly McLean or Janeiro, whichever way we're yeah. looking at. The sort of supporting characters, Argyle. Yeah, Stewie has got a very strong character. Like we say, we've got Dwayne T. Robinson. William Atherton is Thornburg, the, the, the scumbag Thornburg. Uh, TV reporter. Yeah, but, yeah. But, oh, man. like I say, probably the, the most standout for me on all this has got to be Alice. Alice. Harry Alice, as yes, you'd like to point out right. to me. I will. I want to say I've seen Die Hard. I would say roughly two hundred and twenty-three times. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never noticed till I was sat in the cinema with Mister Pedantic the other day. It's not pedantic. It was no, a valid no, question. I'm giving you a compliment. Let oh, me finish. Let on. me finish. <laughs> that the first time that Holly speaks to uh, Alice. Alice, she refers to him as Harry. She says it's Christmas Eve, Harry. Yeah. Yeah. And it was only then I realised in the book he's actually Harry Alice. Because I said I turned and said to Neil. Have you noticed that she calls him Harry? I've um, never noticed it. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, go. all the times I've seen her. So, like I say, I learned something new, especially if I got to the cinema with Scott. And then confirm that on IMDb, Hart Bockner's character is actually called Harry Alice. And Hart Bockner's uncle, I believe, was in the 1968 uh, Detect The Detective. Wow. So there's another little tie there. Yeah. Yeah. Don't know the name of his uncle, but um, you, you may have to check me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. So then, obviously, things go on. We, we get introduced to more characters. You've got Grand Al Bush and... Uh, Robert Davey. Robert Davy as... So, Agent Johnson. And, and Special Agent Johnson. No relation. <laughs> no relation. No relation. <laughs> <laughs> like, these two guys would be related anyway. Ah, and it know. also gives you one of the greatest lines of all time, which I realise I say in work about three times a day, was when he comes on the radio and he goes, this is Agent Johnson. He goes, no, the other the one. The other one. So... I'm taking it because Robert Davey was talking. How did he describe the other one? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I got a guy that sits behind me who's called Chris Evans. And every time every, I hear him answer the phone about literally four times a day, I'll pick up on him saying, hi, this is Chris Evans. And I always go, no, the other one. Because oh, I think yeah, it's not yeah. Captain America. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> no one else in the office gets it. <laughs> no, 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 no. And then you've got, obviously, this little subplot with the FBI going through their rule book, which is playing into Hans Gruber's hands. They think they're getting one up on him. And then... A little character that you know I was nudging you in the cinema last week, where you've got Rick DeCorman turning up in this little tiny role as the um, electrical engineer. Yeah, you know again, yeah, yeah Rick DeCorman from The Burbs, one of mine and Steve Amos's all-time right. favorite films. 
and you know, like even the the, the smallest, most inse- inconsequential role is given to an actor or an actress that can, you know, portray that role. That can, yeah, that sell can, that role exactly. But again, again going back going back to our sort of cops who should be in a higher position. Mm-hmm. You've got the FBI. You've got the chief deputy chief of police there. Yeah, you've got the SWAT team there. Mm-hmm. They're, they're panic firing. Who says they're shooting the lights? Sergeant Hal. Hal Powell. Who picks up on that? They're going after the lights. Yeah. And, he, and then, yeah. And he says it always not. They're going after the lights. They're going after the lights. Oh, and they're yeah. like, they're panic fight. They're going after the lights. Yeah. <laughs> He's the only one there who's actually got the idea of it. Yeah. And this is, a, this is a beat cop that hasn't fired a gun for God knows how many years. You know, he's probably pushing pencil behind the desk, as, as John McLean says, but he is the one that's tactically aware because he's got this street level sensibility of a cop. There's also another character, too, that you guys missed. Mary Ellen Trainer plays Gail Wallens, who's like the. Uh... Right. This is where the Stephen E. D'Souza link comes in, and it links uh, this film to, I believe, Commando and Lethal. the Denzel Washington film Ricochet. Ma- Mary Ellen Trainer plays Gail Wallens. Now, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, if you if you watch Ricochet, the 1991 Denzel Washington action film with John Lithgow, fantastic film, Mary Ellen Trainer actually plays the same character in that film. Oh, wow. Yeah. I thought she was in the film. I didn't no, know she was the same character. She actually, I believe there's there's a bit where um, Gail Wallens is on screen um, in a bit of TV footage yes, in the background. you're right. And she actually plays the same character. Now, Stephen E. D'Souza, who's very active on Twitter, and we've had a, a few little nudges with him in the past, he's actually confirmed... That all of these films, I think uh, Die Hard, Commando, certainly. Um, I Die think too. because Commando is set in Valverde and Predator is also set in Valverde, there's a link there. So all of these films are sort of linked together by this sort of vague continuity. Where's the uh, leader coming what from? What about Lethal Weapon? Because yeah. she's also the psychologist. She's, she's, yeah, no, she's, she's the psychologist in Lethal Weapon, but I don't believe she's playing the same character there. Isn't she the mom in something as well? She's the, she's the mother in Goonies? Goonies and Monster Squad. Monster Squad. Yeah. Is she the mother in Monster Squad? Yep. Holy cow. <laughs> but yeah, you know, this sort of little Stephen E. D'Souza universe. Where does General Ramon Esperanza in Die Hard 2 come from? Valverde. That's what I'm saying. Die Hard 2 as well. So yeah. all of these films are linked together. <laughs> so yeah, you know, you've mentioned in the editing then, and, and then the fact that Die Hard just builds this sort of final crescendo where Hans Gruber's ultimate plan is revealed. The fact that, you know, they're going to request these helicopters they're going to get the uh, hostages up to the roof they're going to cut they're, the power they're going to cut the power and then they're going to blow the roof and escape on the helicopters with the 650 million dollars killing all the hostages which is a little bit cold-blooded they're going to kill all, <laughs> none of them are going on the helicopters they're going to kill all the they're going to blow the roof when the hostages yeah, with all the hostages on it they're going to escape in the ambulance after the building's level of course they are that's because right as yes. it says when you escape with six hundred million dollars, trust me. That if you're not dead, they're going to come you. looking for you. But they're going to escape in the ambulance. Yeah, yeah. That's... guys, we've been we've been terribly sexist here. We're gonna we're gonna get a hit for. It. We've talked about great characters. We haven't mentioned one of the strongest characters. Bonnie Bedelia. Bonnie Bedelia. Bonnie Bedelia, who is the only person that stands up to Hans Gruber without a gun. And you know, she you know, when she first meets him, and he, and he says, "What idiot put you in charge? You did when you murdered my boss." Personally, I'd pass on the job, but no one else wanted to do it. You know, she's just you know, again. Can, um, I, can I do a recurring thing that I'll do quite often with this? Like I say, now lately, what irritates me about films is films are brought out and they say, "Oh, we got to have a strong, kick-ass woman, or we need a strong, yeah. independent lady. We need to have an every man." This film is doing it without ramming it down your throat. Of course it is. Yeah, you've absolutely. Got, you've, got, yeah. You've, got, you've, got, you've got an overweight black guy who's, yeah. who's wiser than the FBI. Absolutely. He's yeah. the only one down on ground level who's got his shit together. You've got yeah. a, a working mother yeah. who's standing up when everyone else is terrified. Is the only person who's... In 80s corporate America. And in, has worked her way up to a position of power. Absolutely, Whilst yeah. having a family. 
standing up to her sexist husband because of the fact he doesn't yeah. like the, he doesn't like her using <laughs> her maiden name. Yeah, you know it's. So what, yeah. what sort of empowerment do we have there? None of this is rammed down our throats. No, none of this is none of this film. In fact, people would probably look at Die Hard as being a generic eighties sort of yeah, a, misog- guy, a misogynist guy, action film. It's film. Not. No, it's know? not. It yeah. takes you know it takes all the boxes of you know it doesn't exclude anyone. You know it, it puts a woman front and center there in a, in a, in a you know a, a heroine role. We want to talk about characters with mental health being represented. Well, Al Powers definitely got PTSD. He hasn't been able to draw his weapon for twelve has. years. Absolutely, yeah. It takes all the boxes. It's, it's a perfect film. It's a perfect film. But but I would also I would also and maybe this is not a popular opinion, but you know I, I in this very PC world that we're kind of racing towards, I don't think a film has to check all the boxes in, in the doesn't. sense of a representation because that's not how life is. No, exactly life, not. you know, if you you know I I write you know I write public transportation, and so you you get all kinds of walks of life there. But, you know, it, at certain businesses or certain establishments, you're not going to have every single uh, type of ethnicity or every type of, uh, you know, sex mm-hmm. represented. So, you know, and again, but films me... Do, but films do try, they do try and sell a film now, don't they? The strength of that. That's, that's the point I was making. I'm not saying that this film set out to do that. Yeah. But they do yeah. try and sell a film now on the fact of, whatever, like, like you say, real life just isn't like that, is it? Right. No. And, and, yeah. I, and, I, and I can argue, though, that they, they haven't, you know, in going towards this theory of having it hasn't been that successful no. it hasn't been that successful i mean the, the ghostbusters uh remake or uh, retelling or whatever and again it's not that i don't want them to succeed I, I just feel like you know it missed the mark and you know even with the oceans eight you know fine enough film but it wasn't it wasn't like great so it's almost like they become a detriment to their own idea of of trying to to, to you know do this yeah they're almost sort of like you almost get the impression that they're sort of created in a boardroom with a sort of flow chart of we've got to yeah. tick this box, this box, that box. If you look at this film, the the, 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 the points I've made there, it wouldn't matter really if, you know, um, Al was whatever ethnicity or if Holly wasn't this, you know, this, this type of woman. Yeah. What I'm saying to you is if you're looking for a film and you can check boxes with it, great, you can do that. But if you look at this, all this is encompassed in this film, none of it's rammed down your throat. No. It's all organic because you say it looks... That's how life is. Yeah, whatever, wherever the character the is, you know, male, female, black, white, cat, dog, whatever. They they treat all of the characters with respect. Some of the characters are naturally a holes. Yeah. Characters like Dwayne Robinson. They're all extremely well written. I put my cards on the table earlier on. I've declared Die Hard to be the greatest action film you know ever, bar none. And you know I will stand by that until something better comes along. And yeah. it's now been thirty years. We've got it right. Got it right that time. We it's got been, it in the engine. It's, it's, it's been thirty years and. For me personally, it still holds that lofty position of the greatest action film ever made. I will go as far as to say it's one of the greatest films ever made. Certainly one of the greatest films of the 80s. It's a film that I, I'll, I'll never tire of. It just does so much right. It doesn't get hardly anything wrong. You know, the little nitpicks I brought up earlier on are done for nothing more than <laughs> comedy value and to show what a, what a hopeless pedant I am. But again, these are not flaws I'm finding with the film. That, that's it for me. Die Hard is is the beginning and end for me for action films. It's there are other crossover action films like Terminator Two, Predator, Robocop. They've got science fiction elements. So for me, they're not a pure action film. I would say a pure action, action film, film is yeah. something like Lethal Weapon, Commando, Die Hard. 
they're action films. You know, there, there are other films which are, you know, cross other genres like war films and action films and, you know, like The Dirty Dozen, which is an action film, you could argue, just set in a historical World War II background. Die Hard is the perfect quintessential action film. It does everything to the nth degree. It takes time with its characters. It gets you to like its characters, even the bad guys. It holds up to scrutiny 30 years later. It looks incredible. What an amazing looking film. Bearing in mind the majority of it is set at nighttime. Apart from those scenes on the three hour sort of <laughs> magic hour. The music by Michael Kamen. And then you've also got, you know, the actual soundtrack music. They integrate you with it. You know, the two man editing team just do an incredible job. Director of photography. Uh, the director of photography. So shot. Who then later went on to direct Speed. Yeah, ironically, you know? ironically a, a product of the Dyer generation. Yeah, I was going to mention that, that that this was one of those movies where after it, every movie was like tagged as yeah. Die Hard die on a hard boat on a or bus, Die Hard on yeah. a train or Die Hard in, you know, in the sky or whatever, you know, like they, they, it was it was copied. And to kind of hit on, on your point, uh, Sky, you know, for me, you know, when, when we're talking about movies and the impact that they have and, and whether, you know, something can be considered great, uh, my criteria is always pretty simple. It's the rewatchability and the enjoyment off that if, if you can have a film that you've seen you know 20 times and you know the all the plot points you know what's going to happen but you can continue to rewatch it and still enjoy it and still take things from it to me that's a sign of a great film absolutely absolutely i would say the sky when we went to watch it last week um at the moment i'm on some weird medication which is basically having some sort of strange effect on my bladder. And within five minutes of us sitting there, I was like, I need to use the bathroom. Yeah, you did. And I sat there and I was like, right, I'll wait for the, I'll wait for the quiet bit and I'll just scuttle out quickly and I'll come back and I won't miss anything. Yeah. And for the first 25 minutes of that film, every time I kept thinking, I'll go after this scene, I was yeah. thinking, no, but this scene's coming up. And it was like, you didn't want to miss any of it. Because like you say, I haven't seen it so many times, but you still thoroughly enjoy watching it. Yeah, this is a, this is a film that you've seen dozens of times, but you were sat there in the cinema with me, and you just didn't want to, you know, you you didn't want to miss a thing. Let's tell the truth. I peed in a cup. <laughs> <laughs> the best part was I went out to the bathroom, and as I was using the bathroom, it was the one right next to the the, the cinema. Yeah, so the, to the, the screen, screen. Yeah. So as I'm stood there at the urinal, the machine gun starts ricocheting around the sort of tiled walls. Wow. And there was a little part of me really wished you'd been taken hostage so I'd have to climb through a vent and uh. save you. <laughs> and I find if I go into a building, I instantly start yeah. thinking, what would happen if terrorists took over now? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't want anyone to be killed. No, no, know? no. I don't really particularly want to get shot up and, you know, my feet cut the bits of glass, but I yeah. kind of want to. <laughs> I bet, I bet, I was just going to say, I bet you make sure you keep your shoes on. Oh, man. And I've always got a white vest on just in case. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And also, um, the comedy in this is, is to me is just super solid. Like the writing, oh, yeah, absolutely. one of my one of one of my absolute favorite lines in this in this, um, uh, and and it, it's almost like a throwaway line, but it's one of my favorite scenes in this movie for the comedy is when Bruce Willis is talking to the nine one one operator. Oh, I love it. Yeah, and she says she says something to the effect like this is a this is for emergencies only, and he's all, lady, does it sound like an or- ordering a fucking pizza? Yeah. <laughs> I, I I roll every time like I, I roll oh. every time I hear that. It, it never gets old. I just think it's it's hilarious. And yeah. it's like it's, it's the same sort of thing as well. Whenever I'm getting slightly told off by someone and I know I'm in the right, it instantly pops into my head of I'm not the one who just got butt fucked on national, national TV. TV. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I do apologize to our listeners for people who are not 
intimately familiar with Die Hard. We should have laid out from the start. We always forget to do this. That we were oh, gonna, we mate, are gonna, I'm not going to give a spoiler review. No, I'm not going to give no, a spoiler no. warning of a film. If you, if you haven't old. seen a 30 year old <laughs> film that is pretty much regarded as one of the greatest action films ever made, and really, you know, it's just, it's all magical. It's all good. Jacob, is there anything else you want to you know, say about Die Hard before we move briefly on to the uh, numerous sequels? No, I mean, like, again, I think, as you said before, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try to convince anybody to see this. I mean, it's in the zeitgeist. I mean, it's been referenced so many different times through pop culture. It's a classic film. I, I, I can't really find any fault in it. Uh, sunsets or not. And, uh, um, you know, it, it's again, I revisit it. I, I know you said it had been 10 years since you had seen it roughly. Um, and I know, Neil, you say you, you, you watch it every year. Um, I probably watch it at least once every few years. Um, and, you know, it, and again, I, I get the same amount of enjoyment out of it. I, it takes me back to that time of of this era of action films and just all these wonderful characters and the wonderful directing, and the writing and the, the soundtrack and all the things that we talked about. So um, mm. the only thing I could basically maybe inspire someone is that if you haven't seen it in a long time, you know, go back and watch it. And I, I bet you you'll really love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I say 10 years. It probably wasn't that long. I, I, I'm pretty sure that the last time I actually watched it was me and my wife. I'd been nagging her for years on Christmas Eve saying, we need to watch Die Hard as, the, as, the, as like a Christmas Eve film. She was like, no, no, you, you've got to watch a Christmas film. No, this is a Christmas film. And then ultimately, you know, she relented one year and we actually sat down and that was our Christmas Eve film. But that, yeah, you know, that, that it could have been maybe six, seven years ago. Maybe not as long as 10. It's the basis of right. marriage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For, for me, it's, um, like I say, it, it's not just one of the greatest action films. I completely echo your sentiments. It's one of the greatest films, I think, Agreed. firstly for structure-wise and story-wise and character-building-wise. It's one of my, it's always going to be within my top five. Some you know, My top five will shift and move depending on what head I got on yeah. at the time. It's always in the top five, but a lot of time it's my number one. It's a film that I've watched a week and a half ago I'm still going to watch it on Christmas Eve if for me to quote that famous meme it's not Christmas until Hans Gruber falls off Nakatomi exactly. Towers absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and another funny line where, where he says I hope that wasn't one of the hostages yeah <laughs> now I know I know you know we, we've not gone in too much like a lot of the time we go into a lot of the actual specific background and making of the film but with a, with a film like Die Hard, I think what we had agreed beforehand is the fact that we were just going to approach it with our own personal sort of analysis of the film, which you're not going to get anywhere else because it's personal to the three of us. Moving on, obviously a film as successful as Die Hard, I think it was made on a budget of $28 million. It took $140 million worldwide, which for 1988 was a it was a pretty decent haul. Well, five million of that went to Bruce Willis. Exactly, yeah. So which his second film? To his get se- five yeah, million. his second film. He, you know, he he commanded uh, you know a pay packet of five million dollars. Do you know what I think it was with that? I think they've been through so many of the sort of big hitters with the sort of Schwarzeneggers and Stallones, and you know, yeah, that they would have probably demanded a salary triple that. Yeah, they probably were. So yeah. they probably actually thought they were getting a deal for five million. So then, obviously, it came as no surprise that when Die Hard was an excess, and it, you know, theatrically, it did reasonably well. It did very well. On home video, it was a huge success. I think it made 20th Century Fox, I think, easily as much, if not more, on home video uh, sales as it did theatrically. A sequel was inevitable. And then, obviously, in 1990, we had Rennie Harlan, Die Hard 2. Die Harder. Die Harder. Jacob... What is your sort of take on the first of what would become many Die Hard sequels? 
Die Harder, I, I actually did see that in the theater, and I, I like it. I, I know it's it's not it's again the bar is set very high, so it's not gonna even compare to Die Hard. But I still like it. I, you know, I, I liked the, the John McClane character. Uh, you know, I think it's fun. Uh, he's fun, and again, it's it's a little bit of action uh, with like a kind of twist thrown it thrown in. You know, the the setting is is at, at an airport um, or around the surrounding areas too. There's a fun, there's a fun aspect to it that that I like. I still, it's one of, it's a film I own, and it's a film I'll continue to watch. It's kind of guilty of the sort of classic cliche thing, really, of um, basically being a, re- a soft reboot or remake of the original. I've got no particular issue with Die Hard Two. I thoroughly enjoy. It's like echoing Jacob, there, it's never going to be as good as the original. For me, it's a very, it's a very good second place. Yeah, Die Hard 2, it's, you You just got to look at the poster of the film. It very much apes that of the first film. Obviously a different setting of an airport. It is trying to sort of retool things, but ultimately sort of rehash what the original did. Ultimately though, I've got to be honest with you, much like Martin Kessler is about Predator 2, I'm like the same about Die Hard 2. It's a very, it's a very I, good I like the metal. film. I've always liked the film. For me personally, it's my favourite of all the Die Hard sequels. I know Die Hard 3 is extremely popular, but I've got some big issues with the second half of Die Hard 3, which sort of degenerates into a sort of Looney Tunes sort of... Knockabout. It just gets ridiculous. It it stretches things far beyond you know, well, that, credibility. That's, that's what I'd say with the second one, really, is the second one's good until the final scene. And then you have McLean fighting William on, Sadler's yeah. character on the, on, the, on the wing of a plane. Wing of a plane. And that is when Die Hard for me dies. Because <laughs> the, the whole essence of Die Hard is... The sort of everyday guy. Yeah. I don't like to think that I could jump off a building with a fire hose wrapped around me, but I kind of accept. That you, by, by that point, you die hard. That you, you could yeah. do it. Yeah. I know that I'm never going to be able to fight on the, the wing of a Boeing 747. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. And this is where McLean started moving from being the everyman action hero to the Superman action it, hero. Yeah. And, yeah, a little fantastical. Yeah. And I would say, by the time you move to Die Hard with the Vengeance, the first half of Die Hard, die hard with the Vengeance, I actually kind of quite like that. I like the fact that he's a bit of an alcoholic now. Yeah. He's moved back to New York. I do, I do. After all this, he split up with Holly. I, I, I like mean, the fact... What more did that man have to do for yes, her? Yes, I know. He exactly. saved her from a building. He saved her from a yeah. plane. And she still chucked him out. <laughs> Pairing him up with Samuel L. Jackson, I think that was done probably more because of the success of Pulp Fiction the year before. Yeah, well, what he, the original take on this was this was an original story for Lethal Weapon 3, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah, which which would make sense. So yeah. you had the sort of duo there working together. Yeah. Like you say, they just come off the back of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I kind of like the fact that he came back, and I, the Die Hard with a Vengeance. I say it has his admirers. I agree with you, really. This it goes one, two, three for yeah, me. Yeah, it, it, it like the it's complete. You know, it throws logic and and risk out of the window. By the second half, they're indestructible. It's like Looney Tunes. But I kind of like the fact Jeremy Irons' character comes back, not just to. To steal the money, but to also avenge his brother, which the way, I know is a well, bit of a cliche. The way but. I see it is, the obvious thing is he's coming back to re- get revenge for his brother, but ultimately he's just there the to steal money, <laughs> like his brother. I do like that. You know, if if Die Hard is a ten, I would say that Die Hard Two is maybe a seven. Knock a point down for Die Hard with a vengeance. And for me personally, I'm going to put a full stop there. I'm not even going to say anything about the other two Die Hard films because for me, they should never have been made. I'll, I'll hand that over to you guys. Have you have you seen the other two Die Hard films? The, the latter. I have seen Live Free or Die Hard. Um, I don't think much of it at all. I know there's two cuts of it. There's the PG thirteen cut. God forbid. What the hell were they thinking with a Die Hard film? 
And then there's obviously the R-rated cut where they didn't sort of mute out yippee motherfucker. I just don't think it's particularly good. And when Bruce Willis jumps onto the jet, onto the wing of uh, an F-14. Harrier jump jet, <laughs> F-14, or, 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 F-14. Oh, no, Harrier, Harrier jump jet, yeah. yeah, it's ludicrous. It's taken, yeah. it's taken that fight on the wing of a plane in Die Hard 2, which was already stretching credibility. And yeah, it made that look like it's plausible. It could have happened. I knew within the first five minutes when he gets into a gunfight and he's like, instead of just shooting the guy, he shoots a, a fire extinguisher yeah. so it'll bounce off the it's wall. It's Looney Tunes. It's Looney yeah, Tunes. like you say, yeah. he shoots a cop car to go ramp up and go through a helicopter. Yes, he does, yeah. And it's like, it's... what the hell is going on here? And you'd think of all people, Bruce Willis had done numerous interviews throughout the years yeah. when he talked about Die Hard and sort of gone on about the essence of the character and about how he was this every man and yet seems happy and content to come back and be this almost cartoon character version of John McClane. What I was going to say is that, uh, yeah, the, I, the, I only like, you know, I only own the, the three original diehards. I've only seen uh, Live Free and Die Hard. I'd never even bothered to see, I will at some point, but I never bothered to see the fifth one. Um, so I can't really speak on that. But if it's any, if it's close to even being as terrible as the fourth one was, again, it, this, I think the series is a victim of, of the studio's greed and trying to when they have a series or they have a good thing they like beat it into the ground until it's basically unrecognizable um as as part of the the you know the the series itself jacob full disclosure i never want to judge a film i haven't seen but i take it on good authority from people whose opinion i trust like the man who sat next to me now i was advised not to watch die hard 5 which i've not done so neil die hard 5 i've so i've seen it once I've never seen it again um, if you think the fighting on the plane was ridiculous if you think the jumping on the Harrier jump jet was ridiculous we now get Bruce Willis swinging on the back of a CGI helicopter wow. but it does come with a great tagline of yippee mother Russia oh. and it also stars Jai Courtney as his oh. son have I told you enough about this to make you have a gouge your eyes out and never see this film I never want to yes. see it <laughs> well I, I'm, I'm a firm believer though that I can't shit on a movie until I've seen it guys you see this is the one this is the one place where you can make an exception to that rule and shit on it freely I'm telling you <laughs> but much like that other Jay Courtney film Terminator Genesis oh he's, he just knocks him out the park doesn't he what did he do after that Suicide Squad wasn't he oh. yeah which I actually quite liked him in Suicide Squad oh my god I he, was, he was okay for Jay Courtney okay so anyway um, there I, is Diad 6 coming out which is going to be based on Diad Year 1 ca- comics right it's going to be told yeah. partly Past and future mm. with flashback. Yeah, we need to get Jason Gordon Levitt to play McLean, obviously, because he does a convincing. He does a, he does a better Bruce Willis than Bruce Willis, as he did in Looper. Yeah, but I'm no <laughs> interest to see that either, to be no. honest. No, let's leave it where it is. Those films are perfect. Class numbers one, two, and three, and then John McLean retired. One, two, and half of three. Well, let's talk about the film. So, so Die Hard Six is going to be in a in a in a very large building that's a retirement home. I yeah, think. I I hope he comes. Well, they can say Die Hard Six. They basically should do the remake of Nothing Lasts Forever and get him to play Joe Leland. Yes, an older mm. yeah. Bruce Willis is now the same age, I believe, as Frank Sinatra was when he did the Detective yeah. or thereabouts. So that worked perfectly. In a perfect world, things come full circle. Perfect world, alternate universe. We'd have seen Die Hard one and two. We'd have then seen the last Boy Scout of John McClane. We forgot, yeah, becoming a private detective. Something Neil and I have always agreed on is the last Boy Scout from 1991, the Tony Scott film. That should have been Die Hard three. Yep, and then Die Hard 4 would have been hostages with McLean now retired as a retired sheriff. Anyway, we could we could go on about our, we could go on all night about our alternate theories of a Die Hard universe that's slightly different to the one we've got. But I hope you've all enjoyed this sort of um, blowing the roof on one of our all-time favorite films. 
Jacob, thank you so much for joining us uh, and offering your insight into this film. You, you know, it, it's been an absolute pleasure finally getting you on here. Uh, where can people find you on social media if they want to hit you up to chat about boxing, movies, or, or, or anything else? First of all, I just wanted to say um, thanks for having me on. It's been a true honor and being able to talk to you guys in person. You know, I've heard you guys on um, previous uh, podcasts on The Wrong Reel. Um, excellent episodes. So anybody out there that hasn't listened to them, search those out. You know, I really love the show. Um, I can't, I can't tell you enough, you know, how I, I always anxiously waiting for a new episode to come out. I love your, your segment that you guys do, um, where you do your top five and, you know, you take listeners, um, uh, suggestions and stuff like that. And, um, your commentary was uh, both of them were, were really great. So I'm hoping we'll get a commando commentary or roadhouse or something soon. But uh, we're definitely having you back. And I think next time me and you're going to talk boxing movies. Is that a deal? Yeah, that's a deal. I, I love talking boxing anytime. And, and uh, you know, shout out to you on your excellent pieces that you did on the Rocky uh, series. You know? Oh, thank they, you, they, thank you, so you know, right, right, right. When I read them, I like it just made me want to go watch the movies again. So besides number five, um, <laughs> but the excellent pieces, but you know, you guys are doing you know, great work and you know, you guys get me through, um, some, some long days, at, you know, at my job or on my commutes. And so I, I, I can never thank you guys enough for, for what you guys do. Thank you for the pieces you've, you've, you've put on, on film 89 for us as well, because obviously you did your piece all about Nina and then all of a sudden, you know, Ava Vivas, the, the director of that film, started following us on Twitter. So, you know. Yeah, and I gotta say, big props to you as well. The, the amount of times you push our products as well. Previous podcasts you shared them, you like you're like the Wunder Kid of you Twitter, are, mate. You are. You, you, you are you are the gel that binds both the wrong real community and everyone else involved in it, you know, all together. And you know, we're just eternally grateful for you, Jacob. Yeah, I mean, I like I can't say it enough. I mean, and I've told James this is that you guys have literally like impacted my life in a way that I can't express. Not, I have my life has meaning, but like this part of me, this movie part uh, of me that I just revel in and that I don't really have a lot of people to share with, you know, it just, it just helps me so much uh, through my life to be able to, to express myself and talk to great people like yourselves. And, you know, I'll always be in, in your guys' debt, you know, for this group that's been created. And it's my pleasure to be able to promote, you know, people that have just these great ideas and thoughts and and I'm hoping that, you know, someday in the future, you know, we can meet in person, you know, whether it's I, I get a trip over to uh, Wells sometime or, or, or somewhere close because I'd love to go see a boxing uh, match over there. It's on my you know bucket list of, of things to do. But, uh, yeah, as far as uh, social media, I could be found at Twitter at JRATM23. You know, I do have a, a boxing site, uh, jabbookboxing.com. It's I find it hard to write, you know, for it. You know, I was doing it with a bunch of uh, people that I met on Twitter before. And most of those people kind of fell to the wayside or went to other um, places to write. So, you know, it's kind of myself, you know, um, and since I, I guessed on a podcast called the Pound for Pound Boxing Report uh, by Michael Wilson, I pretty much get to, you know, do my boxing you know, analysis and, and reviews there. So um, so I don't know if I'll, I'll continue to, to keep up jab boxing, but uh, yeah, I could be found there, too. If you're ever looking for a writer for Jab Book, mate, I'm always open to uh, putting an article in. Don't worry about that. You're you're welcome. Any 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 piece or anything you want to do, I'll post it. And I say, Jacob, it's been uh, it's been great talking to you, mate. We'll definitely have you back. And I say, next time, I think we're gonna put this guy in the neutral corner. Me and you gonna talk boxing movies. I'll be. Sounds me. great, man. I'll I'll be the referee. <laughs> Let's get it on. <laughs> So, Neil, where can people find you if they want to hit you up for, to have a chat on social media? Oh, usually you can find me on Twitter at Neil underscore Gaskin or through the main Film 89 website. 
at filmmaking.uk where all. you'll find us all you'll find uh, obviously you know the rest of the team and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies S-K-Y-E Movies and you can find us all as Neil says at filmmaking.uk on Twitter and Facebook and please check out the website filmmaking.co.uk there's uh, well I don't even know there's just a raft of, uh, of of great articles Steve just put one up now about The Last Temptation of Christ and we're going to be posting one by Jacob on shoplifters which is going to be going up uh, over the next couple of days and as it is this it's, time of year now we're going to say a big thank you to everyone who supported us big you, yeah? massive thank you to you know the likes of uh, God where do you even start Martin Kessler James Hancock Bill Scurry Becky Deanna Dave Eves Adam Rackoff Marcus Penn, uh, oh, uh, Dion Bayer, Jay Blake Fischera. Uh, there's just <laughs> there's too many. There's so many people that we just you know that have helped us in our first year of the podcast and the website. Um, we're just so grateful to be friends with all of the great guys and girls. Uh, and to everyone outside that group who supported us on Twitter, people who are sharing our you know, like I say, I had some great um, feedback on the Rocky stuff. Not oh, the absolutely, yeah, trumpet. The amount of people that DM me, message me, shared that that was really appreciated. You know, I say it really amazes me what a sort of great community of people are out there. Yeah, and the amount of people you say the well wishes we're getting, the reviews we're getting as well. And if you do like the podcast, we always we always forget to do this. Please leave us a rating on iTunes. We'll yeah, please. Out, it, it is it is the time of good cheer. So uh, please, it's Christmas. You know, the time Christmas. of miracles. Please leave us a leave us an iTunes rating. It's extremely important to us, and it would mean a heck of a lot. So, yeah, thank you everyone. Our, our, our sort of um, episode schedule sort of got rejigged a bit, and and thank you for everyone who voted. Uh, you know, for for you know your, your favorite Christmas film. Sorry if um, Die Hard wasn't a film you voted for, but we really do hope that if you have listened to this now, that we've done the film justice, and and sort of a, a prompt and you to want to sort of uh, whip out that DVD or Blu-ray of Die Hard, stick it on, hit us up on uh, on social media with um, you know your sort of views on the film and, and the episode. We're always willing to chat film. So um, I don't know when we'll be back now. Probably. After Christmas, in the new year, I would imagine, after yeah. Christmas yeah. or in the new year, we're going to have our sort of review of the year of uh, 2018 coming up, where sort of all of the Film 89 crew are going to be putting in their two pence worth, giving a sort of rundown of their favourite films and TV shows of the year. So until then, as usual, first off, have a great Christmas. Secondly, stay safe. But most importantly, stay classy. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. But the fire is so delightful And since we've no place to go Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow It doesn't show signs of stopping And I brought some corn for popping The lights are turned way down low Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow When we finally kiss goodnight how I hate going out in the storm But if you really hold me tight All the way home I'll be warm The fire is slowly dying And my dear, we're still goodbye But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow When we finally kiss goodnight how I hate going out in the storm But if you really hold me tight All the way home I'll be warm The fire is slowly dying And my dear, we're still goodbye